Oh, Irene Eustace, part two. Part two. Oh, yeah. Thanks Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. And yeah, good to be here. Yeah, left off at, at the at the hotshot uh, part. Yeah, so we finished last time with uh, 1984, which was the first year that I made any trips with the Bitterroot Hotshot crew. Oh, yeah. And so we're going to kind of cover more of that and a little bit of the history of the crew um, from what I've gleaned over the years. Yeah. And uh, then so we'll it, eventually do volume three and that'll be yes, the sir. West Fork years and more, more lookout stuff, more, yeah. a lot more lookout stuff. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that too. I mean, all of it, all of it's awesome, man. I mean, just cause even the hotshot stuff, even you were talking a little bit last time that before it was the bitter IHC international hotshot crew, Right, in a regional, in a regional, in a regional. It was yeah. A, yeah, IR, right? Yep. Before it was IHC. Yep. So when you were on, it was the, it was the IR crew originally, right? That's what we still called ourselves. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I was going to show something real quick. I don't know yeah. how good this will show up, but uh, David Fox at West Fork, who is the fuels, the head fuels guy out there, he printed these off one time, and I grabbed a couple of them. This is a map of Bitterroot National Forest fires. I'll show it to you first. Yeah. From 1870 through 1984, based on research that's been done for many years. Oh, wow. So hopefully you can see that. And I'm not going to go into any explanation, but it just gives you an idea. And this is a map of the same starting point, 1870, through 2018 oh holy cow so look at this comparison yeah the orange down at the very bottom this is the entire bitterroot forest the orange down at the very bottom is the huge mustang fire on the salmon salmon chalice oh, yeah. uh, back in 2012 that burned the entire 70 80 mile boundary with uh, the west fork oh geez yeah pretty crazy yeah really crazy holy i mean look at the big difference there i mean just like yeah a lot more fires and stuff too yeah in intervening well, years from you know yeah the, the growth and size like, like you said like the mustang fire because that's that's the big blob on the on the one on the right there right yeah mm -hmm. i mean holy cow and and you hear a lot of people talk about that like we, there was quite a few fires because lightning and everything else but they just weren't as big you know it didn't have as dry years it sounded like and as the and fuel loading you know it sounds like we have a lot yeah. more fuel loading these days and Back yeah. way back when, but that was back in the days when it you know took care of the fuel load because things just kind of did what they did and didn't get really huge. Yeah, generally huh. speaking, anyway. Yeah, they yeah. Lived over before fire. we got so efficient at fighting fire when the jumper program started and they can get people quickly to places, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah, get people quickly to small, small spots. You know, like uh, yeah, catch them small. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just trying to remember the saying about getting you know jumpers to you know remote spots quickly but it's gone it's lost on me yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that alone people can look that one up it, the mccall jumper video is a really good one because it talks about it like it has like the quote on there and everything and it, it really goes into right in depth on on the smoke jumper from like rookie training to actual practice of, of being a smoke jumper yep i show that to a lot of folks because it's like i I can tell you about it, but I can just show you through this McCall video, and it does a lot better, better justice than, than my stories, you know? One thing I don't think I did mention firewise when we were talking before, you know, I, yeah. I started at Sula in 76 on Medicine Point, and then I was there on the fire crew um, through through 84 uh, before I went to the hotshot crew as a, as a crew member. 
Um, but we, when I started that year, Sula had fire shelters, the first generation fire shelters, and they had people carry them. The brush crew carried them. They were long and rectangular compared to what oh, we yeah. have now. Yeah. And they were a lot lighter because they didn't have as much material in them as it turns out. But anyway, the they had them at Sula, but nationally, nobody was required to wear them until the next year, 77. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so did you have one your first I, year? I did. Yeah. I mean, I didn't go on any fires at all until after um, I got off the lookout, you know, and came down. Yeah. But when we made that roll to Minnesota, we had to take them. And when we were doing control burns in 76, the few I got to go on, I don't think we took them then. Oh, yeah. But they were official the next year, and then theoretically you were supposed to always have them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that was cool. And another thing I didn't really touch on was that um, back in those days, um, the early and late work, if you didn't have to return to school and there was money, and there seemed to be because there was a lot of logging, so a lot of burns needed to be done. Oh, so yeah. a lot of early spring work was planting trees um sometimes for a couple of months depending on when the snow melted off and also doing some control burns and then the same thing in the fall we plant sometimes in the fall and more do more burns in the fall oh gotcha so uh, by the time fire season started you're pretty ready to go as far as exercise and stuff like that had, you had know the, had the digging muscles on on points by that <laughs> point you know in good shape yeah the tree planting was a lot of cross slope hiking and everything and sometimes hiking into units not so much because most of them were sizable enough that they had uh, um, roads logging roads to them oh gotcha. but some we had to and we had to crawl all over them and we had to use planting tools you know which r6 was what they called the main one i might have mentioned that before but it, like a, like it, a it hole was, kind yeah of, it was almost yeah. like digging line really you know yeah that's what i was thinking you know getting those muscles going because yeah yeah and and we we also had uh chainsaw powered augers oh yeah um usually there'd be at least a few of those and then the person that ran the auger would get headway and get out ahead of the rest of the crew so that uh when the crew started, they wouldn't push the person that was doing that. Oh. And then they could rest a little bit at the far end and then start back on another series of rows. I think we had at least six of those. So, you know, you could have six rows of planters behind you. Jeez, that's pretty so, good. Yeah, yeah. Man. Yeah, and that, that lasted for a long time. Actually, the 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 uh, tree planting and burning, you know, was still pretty active through at least 92 or 93 oh really yeah Dang. yeah so i should have been around for that yeah everybody would get a lot of early work and late work you know yeah so, so that was really cool stuff um yeah so you know sula was a main training ground for a lot of sawyers that ended up going to the bitterroot hotshot crew um because of the Sula Brush Crew, their, the primary job of that crew, other than going to fires when there were fires, was Doing, thinning. Yeah, a bunch of thinning, yeah. Thinning and sawing, and that's what they did almost all summer long. Yeah. So but, a lot of folks got a lot. Everybody got sawing experience. They had, you know, 
I don't know if how many saws might have been left when you were out there, but back in those days when Cal was running the crew, they had a cache of 40 or 50 chainsaws. They didn't use them all, yeah. but you know, whenever they got a chance to replace or get some new ones, they'd usually put those away until the others were just to the point where they weren't being functional with them because they were just old, you know, yes. and they'd rotate them in. But lots of folks got experience on, and we did too. On the fire crew, we got a lot of experience on too because that was one of our projects when there were no fires and there wasn't line to dig around units or whatever. Yeah, that's what we do. We we have we wouldn't necessarily work with the brush crew, but they'd have other places where they wanted us to make piles and stuff. So oh, gotcha. So everybody, you know, got a good shot of learning how to run a saw. Yeah, that's a good deal. It really helps when you go to put in some saw line on a fire. I bet. Yeah, and it was good because, you know, most of the folks that were locals that were that got on the hotshot crew had had at least at least a fair amount of saw experience, you know. Yeah. So it was cool because we had enough folks that almost everybody knew how. And when we'd go on smoke chaser fires, you always had somebody with you always that if it wasn't you who, you know, was really good with a saw. So ah, that really helps, as you know, you know, to thin the fuel's out and, and really get a good fuel break going, you know. Yeah. Someone, someone was handy with the saw can take care of some business. Yeah, it was awesome stuff. Yeah. So I wanted to mention, too, that because yeah. this was a real big deal with me, is that I think I mentioned before that I had uh, on some of my very first fire rolls, like that one to Minnesota, and then some of my favorite fires at Sula. I didn't keep a journal per se all the time, yeah. but starting back when I was young and kept a journal during that big trip that my cousin and I took, you know, driving all around the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, in the old Dotson. I doc. Yeah, in the Dotson, I documented yeah. everything, and I always liked doing that kind of stuff. And so, from after 76 through 84, I didn't document everything, but I documented in journals a lot of my favorite things that happen. Um, I would usually try and take one of these idea books, which the Forest Service, until just recently, still had lots of them. Yeah. But I'd take one of these, and then I could just jot down stuff. And a lot of times, if it was just a smoke chaser fire, I wouldn't write anything unless it was something, you know, something cool happened or it was just an especially neat place or, you know, whatever. Then I'd write it down and uh, then I'd try and write it down or type it later. Yeah. So that was kind of how all that started. But um, we went on a trip in 1980, a pickup crew. I think I mentioned that at Thanksgiving and yeah. Southern California. Yeah, and yeah. I, I journaled that, and like I say, then I did scattered other fires and stuff. Yeah, and then when so, I, I, I real quick, I guess so. When you first like got the um that book, uh, did you just kind of reflect on after that season? We're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Maybe I'll keep doing this. Is that what kind of kept it going? I guess I'm, I'm going to ask you that. I just like doing it, and yeah. I. I had a feeling I was going to do this for a long time, you oh, know, because yeah. I, I really liked it. And that's one of the reasons I stayed on the district crew at Sula for so long is that all of us became, there were a bunch of us that were there all every year. Yeah. And so we all became good friends and we'd hang out and go skiing and do stuff in the winter together and everything too, yeah. you know. Like a family like It was a family. Yeah. And so I just started writing stuff down, you know. Yeah. And then in... 
in 85 when I knew I was going to be on the Hotshot Crew after making those couple of trips with them and really liking it. And yeah. I, I journaled those trips, too. I just decided that I was going to keep a journal every season. Yeah, smart. That's what I was kind of wondering because, like, I mean, it's legendary. Like, I was talking to Josh Hansen just uh, last night at the grocery store. He's like, got to make sure you, you ask him about the journals and stuff, you know. <laughs> like, everyone, yeah, everyone knows about it in the forest and probably, wide, you know, even more wide uh, spread probably. And Hey, and, and Josh was out when he worked at West Fork, you know, back in 20, I don't remember what it was, 2012, 14, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he'd see me journaling. If we'd go on a smoke chaser fire or something, you know, of an evening after we'd be done, you know, uh, hanging out for the night or spending a night or whatever, one of the first things I'd do is I always took the journal with me. Oh, cool. Yep, and I'd, I'd start writing by firelight or headlamp light or whatever and stuff. That's really cool. But the way I did it for a lot of those years on the Hotshot crew, I didn't actually start the journal until the crew came on. So sometimes I'd been already working, you know, for quite a while before that, yeah. um, helping do burns because, you know, if you were a local and you were going to be on the crew, then you could start early planting or whatever. And I just, you know, tree planting, tree planting wasn't good journal material because you basically did the same thing every day, Yeah, you know. And so I'd start when the crew started and then I'd end when the crew got laid off, even if I was going to be on longer. Oh, gotcha. But, um, yeah, and then that changed after after the Hotshot crew and a few things that I did after that. When I when I got to West Fork in 2001, I started journaling everything. I'd start it the day I started, and I'd start it the day I got laid off. You know, no matter how long the season was, I'd do everything. Oh, yeah. And I, I continued that through 2016. And now, since 2016, from 2017 until this last year, I don't write stuff every day, but the days I do air patrol, I'd always write stuff. The days I helped open and or close or resupply lookouts or do other stuff out at West Fork, I write all that up. And then there are, if there were interesting fires going on here in the valley or off forest that either people went to or things happened like, the big fire down in Salmon last year, where the uh, where the the two helicopter pilots died and stuff. Yeah. Certain days, I'd I'd journal stuff, or if we had a big thunderstorm at night, I'd have an entry about that. Usually the next morning or whatever. Oh, cool. Yeah, but like I say, those those hotshot crew years, I basically of the time that the entire crew was on, I journaled every single day. Jeez. And I've got all of that stuff and a lot of it's well all of the hotshot crew stuff is typed up oh really yeah i must have took a while huh a long time yeah. yeah 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 that was one of my winter projects was uh doing that and i also starting in the very beginning that first season on medicine point i had my i had an exact a 35 millimeter camera that i had up at the lookout with me yeah. and i didn't take a super super lot of pictures but i took quite a few you know up at the lookout of you know the interior and scenery and this that and the other oh cool um and i've got all of those and i also had up there with me that first season at medicine point so my uncle in around 1938 bought this movie camera an eight millimeter movie camera 
they had 50 foot rolls of tape of uh, not tape of film film yeah 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 and so it'd be 25 feet on one side and when you'd finish with it the camera it was a wind up camera oh it was a revere and it had a, a Wollensock lens from germany it was a very good camera yeah, sounds... i've got a picture of it they had uh they had ads for him in national old national geographics and stuff oh that's awesome yeah and when he passed away my aunt alta um gave me the camera oh cool i took it to medicine point with me really yep and uh, took some movie clips and stuff. And then Man, that's cool. when we went to that trip to Minnesota in the fall, I took the movie camera with me. I didn't take the exact uh, big, those cameras, 35 millimeter cameras were kind of big. And so oh. I just, you know, didn't do that. But I did take the movie camera and take a How number of films. How big is this movie camera? Like if you like with your oh, hands? Oh, no, like... it's, it's small. Oh, it was it's small. Only, it was only maybe about that tall and that thick and oh really yay wide yeah you could you could hold it in your hand oh oh that's cool yeah i was kind of picturing like something like the you know like the king kong movie or something no 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 just a little guy it was you know after world war ii or actually he got it before world war ii oh and they took all of our families home movies you know when i was a little kid and my other cousins and family gatherings and all that and he filmed my first seven birthdays, and I also inherited all the family films, too. Oh, and wow. And so I didn't do this to all of them, but starting when Costco uh, came into being, you could take 8 millimeter or any movies in like that, and when DVDs started coming in a yeah. bit later, you could have stuff transferred by them to DVD. So oh, yeah. I had the first seven birthdays put on, on DVD. Oh, that's awesome. Kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Were, were, were they color when they transferred them or were they? Yeah, these were all, they were all color. And oh, they, really? Yeah, the DVDs are color too. Yeah. Wow. That's they did cool. a pretty good job, you know. You'd have shaky photos sometimes, but yeah. stuff that's historic like that, I wanted it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I had the same thing done. I had spliced the eight millimeter films of that trip to Minnesota there's probably about 20 minutes worth, I guess. Oh, cool. But I had those transferred to DVD. Yeah. And so when I got on the Hotshot crew that first season, I carried the movie camera around some, but I also had a still camera, a smaller one. Oh. It was 35 millimeter, but it was a, you could do, do prints or slides, but I did a lot of slide stuff in the earlier days. But for stuff like that, I liked the prints better mm. just because... Uh, folks on the crew if you got good photos you know they wanted copies of them yeah and it was a lot easier to come into hamilton there were a couple of photoshops then and then when kmart came you know you could take them in and make make prints and stuff for people yeah yeah and we usually do that at the end of the season so part of the another thing i did all during that hot shot crew years besides doing the journals was i did take a lot of photos and i would make photo albums that was another winter project i'd type up the journal and then i'd organize all the photos i had the dates where everything were taken oh wow did reen do any work yeah i did a lot of work but but i but i i I was just into that stuff of documenting things so you know so cool man yeah and a lot of stuff you know that i describe in the journals i have pictures of of us doing it and that first season, especially with the movie camera, the old movie camera, 
Um, I got some really good shots of big flames and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. So I kept all the years since, I kept doing the photographic stuff. And then when digital cameras first started coming in in the early 2000s, um, I ended up getting one about 03 or 04. And I had borrowed one from Kurt McChesney, the FMO out at West Fork. Oh, yeah. The first time I got to go up to Salmon and staff it for a couple of days. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, I, I took the camera up there and I kept doing that all the way through. So I've Man. got I've got all these all these photo albums and I captioned them as long as I was writing stuff up, typing it up and having it on my computer. I also made captions like a book actually. Oh wow. Of what was going on, you know, in these hotshot crew years for different fires and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's it's been it's been pretty fun, and there's there's a lot of stuff. I've seen man so much. Holy cow! So much stuff. But how yeah. I how I generally do it with these journals was, you know, I'd have uh, inside the front cover. I'd always have whatever the, uh, the GS rates were for the folks on the crew. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I'd have that written down with you know how much straight time was how much time with h with hazard was how much time and a half three five time and three quarters quarter time half time night differential all that stuff you yeah. know because i i kept uh except for the first two seasons i was the person who did all the time and kept track of all the time for the crew yeah we're talking about before the computers yeah, because you, you were telling me, I think I might have been off the camera last time, right, where you were telling me that you'd mail it in, right? Yeah, we we they do the timesheets. Actually, mm -hmm. when I was in Medicine Point, I never did my own timesheet. Crockett would do it down at the down at the ranger station here, or Sister Sandy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they'd turn our timesheets in to the office. The office would send them to the supervisor's office to be double-checked, and they'd be, I assume airmailed probably out of missoula to the finance center which was in new orleans and even with all of that we almost never ever ever had a had a paycheck late ever yeah and the same consistency is now right every two weeks or something, something yeah it was right? exactly the same yeah, yeah that is yeah. cool yeah but i mean you impressive know, it, it worked it, it worked you know that was yeah. that was the way i had to do it because there were no computers for stuff yeah and then i every year also during all those years on the crew i took an individual portrait of everybody that was on the crew and i'd start the albums out with the pictures of of each of us oh that's cool a crew picture at some point during the season would always be up near the front with the names typed under it but individual photos of folks and then late season if people started leaving for school we had fill-ins I'd usually take pictures of a few of them too. Oh, that's really cool. But, I mean, I just I'd write and I'd write and I'd write. Oh man! And I'd end every every entry that we had overtime on. I'd list how much we got for that 24-hour period, and then I'd have a carryover of the grand total for the season. Oh, as, as each day progressed and we got more overtime. Smart. So you didn't have to total at the end of the year. You had you a total. Have to total at the end of the year. You yeah. had it. Yeah. yeah. Smart. Yeah. And then I'd end them. Or actually, I'd I'd make my own copy oh, yeah. of the days in the pay period, and I'd have the date Sunday through you know two weeks every two weeks. Yeah. How many hours we made a day? Basically, real quickly, what we did, and then. Whether we had overtime, I'd put the overtime, how much 
cumulative the next day or whatever as it increased. Oh, gotcha. And then the the grand total for the pay period. Dang. Yeah, yeah. And I'd, I'd end up, some years when we were real busy, I'd fill five of these. Five. And some of them were doubles. Like this one is two of those idea books taped together. So some of the years that I had five of them, there's really close to ten because... I was wondering because you can kind of see the the difference there with the, yeah. the color of the pages and stuff. I doubled them up. Yeah. And if when I took pictures, I'd try and you know, jot down a note of what it was, you know, and I couldn't always do that. But yeah. Anyway, I've got 146 of these. 146. From the beginning through this last summer. Oh wow. I finally couldn't get any more of them. Because West Fork finally ran. They didn't have any anymore. I don't know if they make them anymore except in the weather kits. Yeah. So I had to actually use a small lined notebook this last summer. I had two of these and then one more. So Yeah. Because you have to get you some right in the rains. Yeah. You ever use those? Or the right in the rains? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Not as much paper, it looks like, compared to that the idea book there. Yeah. I'll just keep my eye out because, you know, I run into them every once in a while because people kind of stop using them, but they're, they're still... You most folks didn't warm. use them in the weather kits. They ended up with, they were, you know, we would just use the form that's in there for writing down the weather yeah. and not so much for the notes. So people would give them to me, you know. It's yeah. like, oh, I want to carry that little booklet around, you know, and I know you want them. So. Yeah, totally. So and that worked out pretty good. Yeah, when I started, the right and the range were kind of the thing to, to have, you know, to take all your notes, especially if you're eye seeing a fire or something or whatever, you put down in freaks or something, the right and rain was just a little easier, you know, at least for me, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a little bit about the the history of the Hotshot crew. Yeah. Um, I gathered a lot of material when I was on the crew, and then Jay and Cash have continued that. Cool. And all of the stuff that I collected um they have there and it's pretty cool that i had made copies of a lot of our our crew ratings and stuff during the years i was on the crew but all the original copies of them i made xerox copies of them but all the originals are in the hotshot building oh really as it moved they the file cabinet to get moved you know and i just felt it was important since i was a documentarian type person yeah to have that there and i'm glad i did and so last year about this time when I did the Fireline Refresher um, at Darby, uh, Cash pulled me aside and he said, hey, come over to the office after you get done. So I walked over to the Hotshot building there. and He had, over the winter, he and a couple of folks had gone through all the historical files and they digitized all of those ratings and all of the historical information that I'd collected and the stuff that they had added to it over the years. Yeah. And he said, bring me a thumb drive, and I'll give you a copy of the whole schmear. Oh, cool. And he, and he did. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's cool. That's really special. Yeah, it's really special. I was really thrilled that he did that. Yeah, you know, great. Man, what a great guy. Yeah. Then I had my own. I had a lot of the stuff, but I had it all in one spot, you know, without having to pull out files that I have, too, and stuff. Yeah, so yeah. it worked out really cool. Yeah, digital cover works a little better. Yeah, those guys are great, man. Yeah, it was cool of him to do that. Yeah. And so... um. Going back to the crew, so, mm -hmm. you know, the genesis of a lot of the hotshot crews in the country, they started in the 60s or the early 60s, the ones that have been around the longest. I think Cali was the first place 
and Southern Cal was the first place really that experimented with that concept of trying to have organized crews that were experienced and could travel all over the country to different kinds of fires. Um, yeah. And they, there's, you know, there's some old historical stuff you can find out online because you can go to the Hotshot Crew website stuff and they have little rundowns on every single crew that's existed and still exists and stuff like that. And, yeah, small, well, like, different types with, like, really, like, bigger than 20-man, like, 30-man. 30, 35-person yeah, crews, yeah. yeah. yeah I read yeah. up on that a little bit, too. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they'd start out at these ranger stations, and sometimes the crew would be disbanded for whatever reason, that oh. run out of money, or not, not so much run out of money, but just whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they'd move to a different ranger station or whatever but they were the first and some of theirs were like going back as far as 56 they were experimenting and Jeez, they'd, they? they'd still they'd call themselves hot shots you know kind of kind of meaning like we're we're hot shots we're we're cool you know? <laughs> big deal yeah we're a big deal yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and so then in our neck of the woods up here in region one the crews, the kind of the precursors of them were in the very late 50s. Um, but there were a lot of people on them, and they didn't necessarily always go on fires because a lot of the times they couldn't take 30 or 35 people. Oh. They had to take 20 people. So Just tra so, transporting them and all that? Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff, yeah. yeah. So some people have to stay behind, and then... If, Next time there was another fire, some of the people that went the first time wouldn't get a go, and you Can know the rotate. others would get a go. Yeah, they'd rotate. Yeah, yeah. So in '63 was really when the IR crew concept started, not only on the Bitterroot but at Nine Mile, and in Idaho and Lolo came along a little bit. Well, right about that same time also, um, and the first. Bitterroot crew, they were called the Bitterroot Interregional Fire Crew, the IR crew. And that name stuck for a long time. Um, we called ourselves that when the crew called themselves that in 84 when I first went with them, and we just did it because that's, that's just the name that everybody used. It yeah, the tradition. Bitterroot yeah. Interregional Fire Crew, Bitterroot Interregional Hotshot Crew. But we just called ourselves to the IR crew, called ourselves the IR crew. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And that was through, we'd still do that through virtually the whole time I was on the crew. Oh, really? Your whole time there? Yeah. And it was cool because when you'd, you'd go to fires at different parts of the country, you knew who the old timer ICs and, and team leader folks, you know, of type one and type two teams they called us IR crew. Oh, really? Yeah. The Bitterroot IR crew here? Some of them have been on precursors or the Bitterroot IR, or not Bitterroot, but the IR crew of wherever they were from, you know? Yeah. So they were a, mainly a Western experience back in those days. Oh, gotcha. Western half of the country, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, but the Bitterroot started in in uh, 63, um, the IR crew, and it was, I think, a 30-person or a 35-person crew. Oh, and wow. Their first headquarters was where the Job Corps, Trapper Creek Job Corps Center is now. Was What was there? Was it just? It had been a CCC camp in oh. the 30s. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. They had one out at Deep, Deep Creek on the way to Magruder oh. called the Deep Creek CCC camp in Idaho. And then Trapper Creek 
CCC camp was what was left of it. Yeah. It was a Forest Service facility, not a ranger station, but it was like a work center. Oh, gotcha. There's buildings and stuff were there? Yeah, there were some old buildings. I never saw any of them because by the time I got here in 76, that had all changed, you know, and oh. the, the Job Corps actually was there and been that's... functional for quite a while. Oh, gotcha. But that's where the, where the crew hung out in 63. Beautiful spot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 63, 64, and they moved out to the East Fork uh, to the the guard camp, they called it. Oh, guard camp, there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, in 65. and Another beautiful spot. Really beautiful spot, yeah. yeah. And the crew was out there until the end of 75, and so my first season for the Forest Service at Sula that was the first year that the the IR crew was at Darby. Oh, where, really? Where they still are. Yeah. 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 And their first headquarters was the old, uh, the visitor, what's the visitor center now? The old yeah. original ranger station building. Yeah. That was the hotshot building. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's and, cool. And and then when I got there, uh, you know, in, in uh, started going with them in 84, and then while well, I was first on the crew, that was our building until... Oh, that's a little cool. while later than that. Did it look different when you guys were in there? It was white, same it is now. Yeah. It used to be downstairs of it where the basement is. They had a lot of files from the ranger station stored down in there oh. and fire information files and stuff like that from Sleeping Child and other big fires, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they also had in one of the back rooms is where all of the freeze-dried for the IR crew and the district crew was all kept in that building. Oh, there were okay. huge bins that you could lock them up so critters couldn't get in it and stuff like that. But oh, yeah. that's where all that stuff was stored. But that was our facility, you know, and we had a phone out there and oh, yeah. had a couple of couches and we had a, like a, not really a training room. It was kind of like a living room. And then, you know, when we do our own training and stuff, that's where we would do it was in there oh it's really cool yeah you yeah know, it's kind of nice this museum now but man that would have been kind of cool if it's still the the hotshot headquarters because that's yeah. a cool building we were in there 85 and 86 and in 87 they had decided that they were going to turn it into a visitor center oh. um so we had to move out of it and over to one of the garage bays where the road crew is now. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly yeah. where that is, yeah. Yeah, and we were in there 87 and part of 88, and then we went, we went back briefly into the visitor center because they never did anything yet. Oh, really? And then we had to move back out there, and that, that's when, when I finished with the crew in 95, we were still out there oh really and then the the new modern building was uh built after the 2000 fire season oh gotcha. and they got a bunch of money to you Up, know, upgrade a little bit upgrade it yeah was that just MP part of the parking lot before that yeah it was nothing there oh gotcha. where little, that is the, bone, the boneyard you know is where it is now out a little further further but yeah. yeah there was nothing over there at all oh wow yeah Man, it's cool to see all the change you know throughout your time yeah That's really cool yeah no it was it was pretty cool but yeah, they uh, we've got we actually have a complete crew list uh, going all the way back to '63 because oh, wow. it was documented, you know, who who ran the crew, what years, and the list I have only goes through '95, 
because I wasn't on the crew after that. But yeah. it's it's easy to extrapolate it because we know how long Rawlings was there, and then you know Jay and and uh, Cash and everybody now. So I've got to get a list from them of of uh, those years between well, starting with '96, '96 through now. Yeah. So how, do you know how many soups there has been then? In those early years, there were a fair number, really. Um, oh, kind of more not, of a turnover rate than... No, not a lot of fast turnover. So Dean Lundberg ran the crew. He was a local guy here, worked at West Fork. He still worked at West Fork when I started in 76. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then a guy named Vern Swanson was next in 64. Lou Romero was in 65, and Lou had been on those previous two crews as a crew member. Oh, nice. And then Jim Crockett, whose picture I showed you before, the smoke jumper that did yeah. the three jumps in one day in 64. Yeah. got the record. He was the crew boss from 66 through 1970, oh. and then he became the dispatcher at Sula. And then another guy was there a couple of years. Rondi Lay was there for three years. And then... Ken Huckel was a fill-in in 76. Um, they were between foremen. Oh. The, the person that that's called a soup now, the head of the crew, the crew boss, yeah. technically, was uh, in those days just called the foreman. Oh, gotcha. And that's what he was still called when I started oh, in, really? in 85, oh, 84 nice. and 85. Yeah. 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 And there was no, um, there was no assistant foreman. Oh, really? The assistant foreman essentially was just the lead squad leader with the most experience of the three squad leaders. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and that person was called the assistant foreman if they had to jump up to fill that position if the soup, let's say, got a division job for part of a fire or something. Oh, gotcha. Like that, yeah. And it was still three squad leaders, a saw squad leader, and then two two uh, uh, digger squads. Yeah. 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 Buck Latipe, who um, came from Texas Canyon oh, really? in Southern Cal in 78, he ran the crew for one, two, three, four, five, six years. Pretty good run. Yep. And then Don Ray, who was a, a, a Sawyer on the crew through quite a bit of the 70s, um, he filled in in 84, that first year I traveled with the crew. And then Bill Miller, who was my boss for the bulk of the time I was there, he ran the crew from 85 through 93. Then Steve Rawlings came for 94 and 95 and was around for a while afterwards. And then then Rory Laws and and uh, Jay and Cash. Yeah. yeah. Nice, man. Yeah. That's really cool. You got the whole history of it. Yeah. So, I mean, they they had it all typed up and everything, you know. So yeah. it's pretty cool. Man. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was good stuff. Yeah. You know, and uh, that first year I was on the crew in 85, um, we we were still under the same old system. Bill was called the foreman. Jim Leverton was the senior squad leader, so he was technically called a squad leader, but he, he would be the assistant if we needed one. Oh, gotcha. And then uh, Tyler Bentley and Bruce McDonald was the saw leader. Tyler Bentley was the other squad leader, and Jim was the squad leader. And then one of the other folks that was senior, let's say, you know, um, 
would take Jim's job if he had to bump up to do the soup job, oh. the foreman job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. How, yeah. How are you guys getting around those days? We had for virtually the whole time that I was on the crew or involved with it, we had a 12 passenger van, uh, like nine, eight or nine passenger van, and a, uh, a pick, a dually pickup that was actually a six pack with oh. a topper on it. And that's where a lot of the gear was stored in the back of that vehicle, the truck. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then each squad had its red bags and, and line gear in the compartment at the back end of the vans. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was it tight quarters or did you have to play a room? It was okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, crummies carry a lot more stuff that's nowadays. What I was but, but yeah, no, it was okay. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. No, your whole time, that was, that was the same configuration, huh? Same time, yeah. yeah. Got a couple of newer vehicles, you know, at different times over the years and stuff, but that was the configuration. And, any air conditioning? They all had air. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> that was one thing that was good, yeah. 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 Um, the interesting part was that through a lot of those years, well, all of those years leading up, and then the whole time I was on the crew – or involved with them from 84 through 94, the only person on the crew that had an appointment was the foreman slash soup. Oh, wow. The only person. Everybody else was a temporary. Dang. Yep. The soup was a seven. Uh, the foreman, yeah. whatever you want to call him back in those days. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't officially the soup until, I think, 87 they changed the name. Oh, Um so that person had an appointment. The three squad leaders were fives, and all the rest of the folks were fours and threes. Oh, wow. And it stayed that way until 87 was the first year that they created an assistant soup, assistant foreman. The, 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 soups, the, the foreman started being called the soup in 87. Oh. And so... They created a GS six position for the assistant soup. And that's a perm, another perm then? No. Still, still seasonal? Still a temporary. Oh, uh, yeah. Still a temporary. And then that that organization stayed exactly the same until ninety five. Oh wow. So all of virtually all those years I was involved with the crew until that last one, it was we were all temporaries. Dang. Except for the soup. All of us. Man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were still, you had to, you know, in order to advance in rate and be a squad leader, you know, there were, there was just like now you had to meet certain qualifications and have had done certain fire things and been signed off and that sort of thing. So, I mean, yeah, we were all fully qualified, you know, for the jobs we held, mm -hmm. but we were, we were all temporaries. Yeah, I mean, the, and that was kind of forest wide still That's too, the way right? It there, was. Yeah, yeah. there was no. Um, all of them, Helena, yeah. Lolo, Saint Joe, everybody it was pretty much all the same. And there, just, and there just wasn't that many perms at all, anyways, in any part of the fire world at no, that point, right? No, no, yeah. there wasn't. There wasn't. Um, but yeah, that's that's how it worked. And then oh, in '95, um, I got the GS6 uh, assistant position oh really and then the three squad leaders they were they were gs5s um they got mine was an 18 and 8 and theirs were 13 and 13 so those were the first ones oh on really the, on the bit 95 you said then yeah oh, man. yeah was that your first appointment or did you have one no that was it that was it 
that was pretty cool. That was the first and only. Yeah, I, oh, ended, really? I ended up leaving the crew after '95 uh, due to some stuff that was going on. Oh yeah, yeah. And so I had to give it up. But uh, yeah, so I'm kind of a career temporary, except for about eight months. Oh wow, it was only eight <laughs> months, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was going on the similar path. I, I mean, I just recently got my perm last year, so uh, I had like 15 or 16 seasons in yeah. until you know because i was a temp six for the jump uh for the jump world for five years so yeah yeah kind of similar as you know with with you too you know but you know it was okay i mean it yeah. was back in those days i mean even folks that graduated from forestry school um nobody got appointments around here there just weren't that many jobs uh, not just in fire but in timber or anything else really yeah even when i started there wasn't really that much for some people you know? they had to go to like private logging companies if they had a, a forestry degree and they specialized in timber you know mm -hmm. they had to work for private industry because there just weren't that many folks yeah and you know none of us none of us ever figured we were ever going to have appointments you know it just didn't seem like it was in the cards yeah but nonetheless you know we still did looking back on it we still did a kick-ass job um we were yeah. we were into doing the best that we could do we sought whatever training we could get we wanted to be on we wanted to be on that crew yeah on the hotshot crew because you got to go places and see different kinds of fire and you got to do lots of really cool stuff but you know looking back i mean the amount of work we all did was just phenomenal yeah you know the number of hours and how how dedicated you had to be to do that i was gonna see that picture of the time the time record that you showed me of like uh, incremental time because it slowly went up right if i remember right the picture like from your first year at the shots to your last year at the shots right oh yeah yeah like yeah. the overtime hours i was like holy cow man yeah yeah, no, it was it was really it was really something else. And yeah, yeah, we uh, I was going to back up once. Cause oh, yeah, I, I was going to mention in 1980 when I was still on the Sula crew, um, one of the coolest fires I'd ever been on up to that time, except for that. Well, that roll to Minnesota, the first season and then the Thanksgiving roll to Southern California for the brush fire yeah. in 80 and december of or november of 80 but in august of 1980 um the frank was actually a declared wilderness by then the selway bitterroot was in 64 the frank came mm. later oh. it was still a wilderness study area for quite a long time oh gotcha uh west fork elkhorn lookout which is long gone now spotted this fire it was on a at a place called smith ridge on west fork oh so it's on West Fork's part of the Frank Church, because when you go over the hill to Magruder, everything to the right of the road is the Selway Bitterroot. Everything to the west of the road is the Frank Church. Oh, I never knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so this this fire, um, the Smith Ridge fire, if you look at the Bitterroot Forest map, West Fork, of course, is at the bottom southwest of the map. That's its boundary. Yeah. And... West Fork has a number of miles of our side of the Salmon River. You know, the the Salmon's part of that, and then the Payette's part of that across the river, and then the Nez that goes on to the Nez. Yeah. Smith Ridge empties down into the Salmon River at just about as 
almost as far on West Fork as you go before you'd run into the Nez Forest. Oh, wow. Yeah. Deep so in there, kind of. It's way out there, <laughs> yeah. way out there. And there's no roads, you know, just the river and trails, and a lot of fires aren't where trails are and stuff like that. Yeah. So three of us from Sula and another person from Darby got to uh, drive out to Nez Pass, and we were flown. We, the forest helicopter then was this old bell, one of the old bubble-nosed, bubble-fronted ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, at, in the best of conditions, you could only take the pilot plus three or four people. Oh, really? And then if it was hot, you sometimes could only take two or three. Oh, geez. So we flew from Nez Pass. The West Forkers were already out there. I didn't really know exactly who all was out there. Mm. You know, when we went up there, I just knew that. It was going to be my first helicopter ride to a fire. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so we took off from Nez Pass and it seemed like we flew for a long time to get out there. We could see the fire way down this ridge, about halfway down to the river. Yeah. Smoking pretty good, but not real big. And he kind of gave us like a real quick flyover around it. And then he went back up to a hella spot that was maybe about a mile and a half at an angle from the fire. And when the West Forkers went in, they had flagged it. Oh, nice. And they had, it came in from an angle. Elkhorn could see it. So Elkhorn was kind of their eyes for if the fire got real active. And they ribboned it in from an angle so that they wouldn't approach it from the top. You know, just it's just standard good tactic. You don't yeah. want to approach a fire from the top. That's still out of control, obviously. Yeah, totally. So we followed it down, and we ended up... Uh, we dug line all night. Uh, they had asked for a crew for the next day, yeah. the, the crew boss. And uh, they had said there weren't any available, but there were probably 13 or 15 smoke jumpers from Missoula available. And so it was, okay, we want them. So we dug line all night. There were rocks rolling downhill, oh, and there was a lot of stuff to pay attention to and stuff, you know. Yeah, scary. And the next morning, the jumpers came in. And Floyd Whitaker, who was a legendary, he and his brother, Floyd and Lloyd, were both Missoula jumpers. They were big guys, and they were real tough, and they were they were pretty famous in jumper circles back in those days. But oh. Floyd was the, the crew boss of, of those guys. Oh, cool. Yep, and they came in, and uh, we had the line basically done, but we all, you know, we since we'd been up all night, we took about a half a day break. And then rejoined them, and in the meantime, they cleaned out the line and did a bunch of gridding to make sure there wasn't anything that rolled down below, you know, or anything that was going to cause a problem. Yeah, yeah. And we all worked, I think, another day and a half mopping up on it. Had a helicopter for water drops. I've got film of all this, too. You do? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so after the next day and a half in the in the late afternoon, we had instructions that, to hike down to the river. So... Corey Bars, one of the gravel bars that's at the bottom of where Smith Creek kind of empties out. It's called Corey? C-O-R-E-Y, I believe that's oh, how they Corey spelled bar. it, Corey oh, Bar. Oh, gotcha. So we camped on the bar. We went swimming in the river. We we slung up a, a volleyball net made out of chute cord. <laughs> and the jumpers had one of those small one-gallon QBs. Yep, yep. You know, they taped up the cap so you wouldn't break your hand or anything. And I've got film of us playing volleyball on the gravel bar down that there that is awesome man yep and the next morning jet boat 
came up from Corn Creek where the road ends like way, I don't even remember how far it is, it's a long way. Came back and there were so many of us down there that it took three trips by the jet boat to get everybody back out. So the first group just hung out at Corn Creek until the boat went all the way back, got the next group and brought them out. And then again with the third group, I was on the second group as I recall. And then we, we, they brought a school bus down and we, a couple of them actually, there were so many of us. And we went back to the North Fork store for dinner and then we went back to the Bitterroot. So I got my first helicopter flight to a fire my first wilderness fire and my first jet boat ride all on that trip. Man, what a so trip. That's so cool. It was a really good one. That jet boat ride must have been awesome too. It huh? was cool. You know, and we did some when when I was on the hot trip crew in later years, we we were down there two or three times where we got jet boat rides for portions, you know, but nothing that long. Yeah. So, that'd be so cool. It was way cool. So Corn Creek was upriver from you guys? Yeah, oh, Corn Creek's where the road ends. When you oh. turn at North Fork and head down the main salmon, yeah, yeah, Corn Creek is where the road ends. Oh, cool, man! Yeah. That's gotta be a beautiful spot too. It is. Yeah, they got a boat launch to this day. There's a there's a ramp there where rafting trips start and that sort of thing. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, man, that's cool. Yeah. I gotta check that out one of these days. There's so much. Yeah, so much to see, man. Yeah, it's cool stuff. But yeah, that was that was a really memorable one. Man, I bet. Yeah, and that, that first helicopter ride, uh, I mean, you probably still remember it like it was yesterday. Oh, I mean, yeah. Those first ones are so cool. Like it's There were no doors on that little guy either, though. Really? You know? So, I mean, you could look you could look right out. Just hang out. Yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> yeah, what a, what a wild feeling, too. Like, for folks who've never been in a helicopter, like, when it takes off, it's this weird, like, zero-gravity feeling at first. It's, mm-hmm. like, floating, and then all of a sudden it just takes off, and, you, you know, it just feels almost like a plane at that point, kind of, but... You know, if, when it first comes off the skids, off the ground, it, it's a weird little feeling. It was, it was pretty cool. Yeah I, yeah, I really like it. The little bell was way different than the Jet Rangers we used later. And, you know, a lot yeah. of trips down on the Salmon River, uh, out of Indianola and stuff, they, they used llamas for the longest time because they were so powerful and everything, you know. Yeah, I think I think BBRD was still using a llama maybe my first year or right before my first season. I was pretty bummed out because a lot of my friends got to ride in a llama to go up to a fire in the tobacco roots. And I was like, oh, man, I would have loved to have been in a llama. I n- they were cool. Yeah, so I've never ridden in one. Yeah, yeah, we got to do it quite a bit. It was pretty pretty neat. And was was the llama, I, I think they're all like this, where it was just like a big fish bowl? Yeah. 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 Big glass ball, ball your bowl. Or whatever yeah, yeah, it was neat. Man, that's cool. Yeah, and we worked with them over the years a lot, you know, doing water drops that we had a big fire up in Blodgett Canyon that first year I was on the hot chat crew in 85 yeah. and we worked with them a lot doing, having them do water drops for us. Cool. And everything. Pretty powerful little machines. Yeah, too, they right? were. That's why they used them down in the salmon, you know, with the, the super warm summers they get down there. Um, and it being high, a lot of it being high, the llamas were really powerful. Yeah. You know, do some good work and, yeah, and probably they, the vision, right? I mean, like it being a big, like glass ball, you can see a lot too, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so that first year, you know, the 85 that I was on the crew, um, it was a it was a huge learning year for me. I mean, like I said, I had gone on a roll with them and then a burning detail at the end of the year in 84. Yeah. But being there all the time, Full you know. Time it, yeah, we I mean, we did all the training stuff in the beginning. You know, you still had to do critical. I don't remember that it was as long as it is if it was 80 hours like it is now. Yeah. But whatever the requirements were, you know, everybody nationally had to do that 
oh, in order sure. to prep. Still kind of intense. Every like- once in a while, you know, we'd come on and like the first day we were on, we'd get not a roll, but we'd get to go to a fire. Oh, really? Yeah. That's before cool. we before we'd done anything, and you know things were a little different back in those days like how many people are returners on your crew and it's like all but four yeah. like, go ahead you know? yeah <laughs> yeah go go help them out yeah but we'd come back and we'd we complete the training and stuff oh, gotcha. and and criticals were they still pretty challenging back then too as far as the training stuff yeah like physical like uh, uh you know physically demanding n- not like it is now really yeah you know, we we We'd run the mile and a half and stuff, and we'd hike and we'd go dig line and stuff. But I mean, it was nothing, nothing terribly intense. Yeah. I mean, everybody was keyed in ahead of time that, you know, you're on a crew that's going to travel all over. You need to be in shape and all that sort of stuff. And so, everyone kind of came we'd in. We'd run with... on our own, and those of us that were lucky enough to start early, like I said, and and plant trees and do stuff like that. You know, we we're, we're pretty ready. Yeah, and hiking shape and all that already. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't remember it being that hard, you know, when I got there at all just because of doing all of that. Yeah, or you getting yourself you know, in some good I shape. I was older than everybody except Bill anyway, you know, at that point. I mean, I was I was 30, 38. Oh, really? Yeah. And your first year in the Hot Shots? Yeah. 38? Oh, wow. Yeah. Man. So, you know, I mean... It was what I chose to do, do fire and stuff. So, I mean, I, I was real into, didn't do much in a way of pull-ups. I mean, I did them and stuff, but it, that kind of stuff and lifting weights wasn't anything that I was real into. Yeah. Um, it was mainly being able, the, the stamina, you know. Yeah, for sure. Hiking stamina that was and all the, that. That was the big deal. And so I'd, I'd run on my own. And then we got to do PT every morning at Sula, you know, all the district got to, the fire crews. Yeah, yeah. So we had a couple of different run routes, you know, from behind the station up to the Pine Knot, I think was a mile and a half to a cattle guard up there. So you do a three-miler, oh, nice. be a mile and a half up, and then a mile and a half back down. Yeah. And then sometimes we'd run in the other direction down toward French Basin. And sometime, if there wasn't much going on, and we, you know, had the time, we'd actually run from the station north toward the east fork road down to the sula store and then back 93 to the station oh really and i forget i don't remember what that was that was about five miles or something like that yeah it's, it's, but, it's, that's a bit of a cruise there yeah yeah but you know we we on the hotshot crew when we were around we we do we do runs we had different places outside of darby that bunkhouse over turf road and different places like that where we could go yeah. Do that sort of thing. But not as much traffic, probably not having to get worried about getting no, run over. No, it wasn't bad at all back and in those days. Now it'd be a little hairy if you wanted to <laughs> run down 93, you know? But we started off like gangbusters. We hadn't been going for very long, you know, and we we did the critical stuff and we got a roll up to, to Lincoln, Montana. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't call it a roll, but late afternoon, really late afternoon, just about the time. We were working 9.30 to 6 then during oh. the summer. And uh, we got a call, and so we loaded up and took off up to Lincoln and drove all night and most of the night and got up there and crashed in the vehicles till the next morning, you know. And the fire was pretty much contained by the time we got there, so Uh we spent the rest of the day and I think one more day doing mop-up, and they let us go. And we were heading back, and... We got just outside of Missoula. We got a call on the radio to uh, 
report to the jump base that we were probably going to fly somewhere. So we went to the jump base and we never made it home. We, uh, we flew down to Utah to the Hyuintas. Oh, we were on a fire for about 10 days there. It frosted and snowed and, and it was cold, (laughs) but yeah, there was still lots of stuff to do though. Lots of mop up and everything. And Oh, wow. We flew straight from there to Palm Springs, California. Dang. And this was, we got there, my birthday is June 30th, and we got there the day before, the afternoon before. It was hotter than holy hell. (laughs) That's Palm Springs usually is in the summer, you know. It was a place when I was a kid, and my parents and people would never go out there in the summer because it was just too crazy hot. Yeah. Yeah, that whole next day, we, uh, we helped do part of a five-mile burnout underneath the aerial tram, and it tied for the national high of 115 degrees that oh, day. It was brutal. my birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. It was miserable for us, you know, coming from Montana and having been at the Uintas right before that. And, and here, the cold. Yeah. The day before, it was in the 30s at night, and now it was 115, and... That only lasted one day. They got we got the burnout. Part of it burned good. Part of it didn't burn that good. It was desert. It's kind of scrubby anyway, you know. Yeah. We spent the night on the football field at the the high school in Palm Springs, and I think at five in the morning it probably cooled off to ninety nine by then or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. And we probably hard to sleep with that, that kind of heat, was, huh? It was pretty miserable. I think oh. a lot of us were on the verge of you know being exhausted anyway, just because of the the heat and. Uh, you know, it was hard to get enough to drink. Yeah, it's hard the to day. hard to stay hydrated when they it's were, hot. They were resupplying you, but the water in the QBs was pretty freaking hot. You know, oh, so yeah. it wasn't really. You needed it, but it wasn't. Didn't taste good. Yeah, were you getting you know? any kind of salt intake or electrolytes or? I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to remember what all we had. You know. Yeah. But we spent part of that next day, and then we and I can't remember if Lola went down there with us too, but the next day we flew back up to twin falls idaho and we didn't have our vehicles so we bust to a fire on the yankee fort of the salmon oh yeah which was between stanley and chalice oh, in the canyon there mm-hmm. and we spent about 10 days there oh man and that was that was kick ass a lot of really exciting stuff happened there yeah beautiful um, spot too there oh yeah it was little different than the main salmon but you know the yankee fork is a fork of the salmon so it was really rugged country a lot of really tough line digging when we were up high pretty steep then pretty steep did a bunch of help with a bunch of burnouts and stuff and this is the first time i'd been involved with a lot of that you know because it just we just didn't do a lot of the big fire stuff uh when we weren't on the hotshot crew, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so that was pretty exciting, you know, yeah. being involved with all that. And so when we were up there, mm-hmm. I don't know how well this will show up. I've got a 16 by 24 of this photo. Oh, wow. In the living room of my house. Holy cow. You took that photo? Yeah. So this was the photo of the summer as it turned out. Yeah. And we really were that close to it. Holy cow. Um, it was part of a helitorch operation, and it came closer to the line a while after they helitorched it. Oh. And we were across the cat line, you know, back as far as we could get. 
and it was hot. It yeah, was I really bet, hot, man. but I think everybody on the crew ordered at least an eight by ten of this, and some got big ones like I did. Yeah, and a- I've still got it in my living room. It's where. When I'm there listening to music or reading or watching TV or doing whatever, I can look right up at this all the time. Still feel the heat, probably. <laughs> yeah, it was it was very cool. Yeah, that's a that's yeah. a great photo, man. Yeah. So after that ten days, we we were headed home and we got stopped at North Fork, and we went to our first of the five rolls that we made down to the Long Tom Complex fires on the Salmon River. Oh, down really? There. Yeah, and we were there about a week and a half or something like that, tramping all over to these remote hella spots in that steep, steep, steep country. Man, gnarly, yeah. Really gnarly, yeah. you know, really dangerous, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we we took good care of ourselves, but you definitely had to have your head on a swivel. So all of this stuff in these varied terrain places, you know, we were gone for a month before we got back home. Jeez. And we just thought we were going to Lincoln, you know? Yeah, that's What so was wild. funny was that a couple of the folks on our crew remembered about a week into this role. This, I remember one of the guys, he, two of them had an apartment at some little thinking thing in Darby, you know? And yeah. he's like, oh, I just remembered I left a steak out on the counter before oh, <laughs> no. we left, you know? Oh, that's not good. And so... Sister Sandy and some of the folks from the crew went to went to all of our places and stuff, you know, and uh, checked on things for us. And yeah, the steak wasn't good. <laughs> oh, I bet. yeah. I mean, she probably. Oh, luckily she was there to grab it because I mean, he'd probably have some maggots living on things. Oh by the time he yeah, got back, I, I think they were due any time, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I and I remember at my place. I mean, I wasn't really prepared. I when I went to that. Uh, that 10 day roll or whatever at Thanksgiving time in, in, uh, uh, 80, it was winter, you know, and I had a good refrigerator and all that stuff. So, I mean, it was no big deal, but I had my little house that I'm in now south of three miles south of Derby there. Really? Same house? Still there. Yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah. And, uh, and I, Sandy collected my mail. I had totally spaced out everything. You know, I just wasn't thinking, like a hot shot yet because yeah. i just hadn't done that stuff you know and it's a lifestyle adjustment for sure yeah i was, you was, I'm not, I was never thinking you know that we'd take off to go to a tiny little fire supposedly and we'd be gone for a month yeah. you know and so yeah i had a i i always kept milk in a, a big glass bottle and when i got back you know there were like eight distinct bands of different color no yeah <laughs> i just had to throw the whole thing out oh know? no yeah no saving it <laughs> The other new people in the crew were, were, you know, they were experiencing the same thing. It's like, oh, note to self. Yeah. Yeah. One of my neighbors always had a big garden, and he was always trying to give me stuff during the summer. Like, And I was like, I can't take it. I mean, I, I might be, when I go to work today, I might be gone tomorrow for a month. I just, thanks a lot. It sounds great, but. I can't do it. Yeah, and especially the vegetables, you leave them on your counter anyways. So then, you know, you have rotten vegetables and that smell to come home to, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we finally got home and we weren't home very long. And we got a fire order to fly out to Shearer out on the Solway River. Oh. There was a fire on Elk Creek was the name of it. It's a creek that's up behind Shearer. Actually, Elk Creek, I didn't... I knew about this place, but I didn't put two and two together that we were that close to where it was, was the site of uh, 
the lookout that's on the cover of uh, Wiley's Peak. was oh. on the cover of Cressick's. No, wait, that wasn't on Cressick's book. Oh. Wiley's Peak was another famous cupola-style lookout, and it had burned lightning. They staffed it back in the, I think, 20s and 30s, and then never, didn't ever staff it again. Just in tw- the was, 20s and 30s, the last time they staffed it? It was just sitting out there, really? and then I think winter or spring of 83, somewhere in there, it got struck by lightning, and it burned up. Oh, sad. Yeah. But we flew out there to Shearer yeah. in a, on the Twin Otter. Oh, really? And, yeah. We had two loads, took two loads, took half the crew and all their, their red bags and stuff, and then the other half and their gear. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So we had to hike into this place with our red bags and everything. That was kind of brutal. Oh, I bet. How, how far was the hike then? Uh, I don't know, five or so miles. It wasn't tor- terrible, but, you know, it was far enough. Enough to feel it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And some of the Missoula jumpers were up there. They'd I ate it. Oh, cool. Yeah. And Mike Pepion was one of them. Mike was a pretty long-time jumper up in Missoula. Oh, gotcha. And a lot of the folks on the crew knew him from when he worked at Darby before he jumped and stuff. Oh, yeah, cool. So, yeah, he was the jumper in charge, and they were pulling them out. And the we didn't know it at that particular time, but the re, the region was hoarding resources. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it was starting to get really dry, and they didn't want us to escape to the southwest or somewhere you know when mm-hmm. it looked like there was stuff going on so the jumpers probably could have just stayed and mopped up on it because that's all we did you know they had it basically contained and everything but they want to share the love yeah so they shared the love and yeah. uh and all they had out there was sea rats and you know some freeze-dried Ooh. and uh i said hey Elk Creek's loaded with fish, just so you know. Oh, nice. So we had one or two people the two or three days that we were there. They'd spend the part of the day down there. Fishing duty. F- fishing. Yeah. Bringing, bringing them up. So we actually did really well. Oh, really? Yep. And then we hiked back to Shearer and swam in the river and then re-geared up and the otters came back in and took us back to Darby. Yep. God dang, that's awesome. And then we went to Blodgett Canyon to a big fire. It was called the Prince Ridge Fire. Prince Ridge is the north rim of Blodgett Canyon. Oh, gotcha. And, uh, or wait. Yeah, Prince Ridge is the north rim, and Romney Ridge is the south rim. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the fire was up about six or so miles from the mouth of the canyon. We hiked in and out of there almost every day for that whole time. Whoa. Yeah, and then we do these death hikes up through the rock slides That's up what to I was these ask. places where you know where you worked up there, and did we did a lot of work with the some of the same llamas that were down in Indianola. Oh yeah, were up for this fire. That's cool. So yeah, we worked with them. Yeah, some brutal country back in there. Oh man, yeah, I've got some photos of us up at the very top, you know, looking across Blodgett Canyon at those big huge walls and stuff yeah yeah it was it was awesome that's so cool because i had the camera i got to go on the movie camera i got to go on a recon flight with uh with bill miller and and jim leverton further up the canyon and that was the first time i'd seen that natural arch that's up there horsehead arch oh i didn't even know about it yeah holy cow how big like it's pretty good size it's not gigantic but it's pretty big and it's on the if you're looking up the canyon, so you're looking west, it'd be on the south side of the canyon. There's only a only a couple of places on the trail where you can see it, and you probably wouldn't see it unless somebody 
told you where to look for it. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I'll have to head up there. It's really cool. This There's a, a gal named Steph Abeg, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, who lives over in Seattle, who is a, a climber, a really good climber. She has an incredible website. But just a few years ago, she and another guy that she climbs with went up there and and traversed the arch and stuff. Oh, cool. It's not that big. I bet you the top of it's probably not even from here to the to the edge of the building out here. Oh, I guess. But, you know, it's it's cool. Yes, yeah, yeah, still cool. Yeah, any arch is kind of cool just cuz, you know, the formation, how how much time it takes to make something like that. For it to be there, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we did then for the whole rest of the summer we made more trips back down to to the salmon, the main salmon to the Long Tom Complex fires. And then the the next to the last trip down there was the really intense really intense part of it um there were a bunch of fires going on and um we were working on the east owl fire which is one of the ones that's on the right hand side as you're driving down toward corn creek up in the real steep country oh that's uh really steep and we'd worked down in that country in the very beginning when we were there too yeah and they had a huge fire camp, type one team. Camps were there, teams were there all summer. Lots of people got absorbed into that whole thing. Jeez. The Sula Brush crew was down there also. We were all at the big camp, the same camp. And then this one day, we all got our assignments for the day. We were going to go back to the Owl Creek area, and we ran into the Sula Brush crew right before they took off in a bus to where they were going to go. And they were going to go up to another fire in the upper part of it it had a couple of different names the butte fire was one of them that oh. they called it and so we got a call we weren't able to go down to our fire because the fire was so active that there was no way we could safely go down to it so we found a, a secure spot where we could just kind of hold and wait and see you know if it was going to be feasible to do it so this was by the, now it was the early afternoon. Yeah. And so this Butte fire, the one that was further up, um, I think there were six or so fires going on at the same time down there. This Butte fire the day before had put up a really big column. And this day, we could see it. It put up a really, really big column. And we got a call on the radio telling us to head back to the camp. The camp was kind of like midway between where a lot of these fires were out from it. Yeah, yeah. To come back to toward the camp because 70 people they thought they had lost in a blow-up. Oh, man. Um, and so... 70, huh? The Sula Brush crew was one of the crews that we thought was up there, and one of the guys on our crew's sister was on our brush crew, oh. and we knew all those folks, personal friends. Yeah, really and close. And it was like, man, we did not want to have to do that. But, I mean, we started up, and before we got back to the main camp, they called and told us that, never mind, just come back. We're gonna. There's a, there's a finger of the fire that's trying to get toward the camp, so we're just going to rip the whole camp down and move to another location. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and we did that. We got stuck in a huge lineup of vehicles and crazy stuff like that. But there was a CAD operator. I showed you this picture after we quit talking last week. Yeah, yeah. There was a CAD operator 
down at that fire who came over the pass from West Fork, Course Creek Pass. That's one of the ways you head down toward that salmon country. Yeah. And then you can take a spur road that loops back up past where this Butte fire is and out toward, uh, eventually toward Oriana Lookout via another spur and Long Tom Lookout out above the Salmon River. So he turned from, from Horse Creek Pass and started heading over and he saw this. I showed you this. Yeah, yep, yep, I remember. He saw this off in the distance and they'd given him a radio and he said as soon as i find a place to turn around i'm going back i'm not going down there <laughs> so as it turns out this photo was taken by him his name was charlie deuce he's local guy here in the valley oh yeah who operated heavy equipment and uh the flames on this mick Dizel was the forest FMO on the Bitterroot at this time and oh. he was down there doing some aerial observation for him during these fires and he saw this when it was happening and he said it was full grown lodgepole thick 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 lodgepole and he estimated the flame heights of the, of the flames that you can see there at 150 to 200 feet and this was taken just by coincidence at virtually the same time that these 70 folks were in a huge clear cut, which had been scraped out as a safety zone. And luckily they were close enough to it that they could use it. Nobody got killed. A few people had smoke inhalation problems because uh, it was really, really smoky. Oh, brutal. And they had to get up and move a couple of times, hold their shelters in front of them as the flame front had moved from one place to another, oh. they'd have to move, and they had to do that two or three times. So scary. Yeah, and that one of the crews that was involved in that, um, Jimenez Eagles from New Mexico, a Native American crew, oh. were featured in the very first fire shelter training film. Oh. Yeah, an old one. You probably haven't seen it, but it was... The one before the one we use now. Oh, good. Gotcha. We've been using the one we use now for a long time. But yeah. yeah, they interviewed some of these folks and they had at the camp, they had uh, a sign, the Jimez Eagles did that Jimez Eagles, survivors of Tin Cup Hill. That was the name of that area. It was Tin oh. Cup Hill on the other side there. Oh, gotcha. So it's become a pretty famous photo. We have a copy of it at West Fork and then Mick Dizel gave me. A color slide and i had oh, cool. this, this copy made Jeez, so man. 150 foot flame length they're saying crazy yeah yeah it's crazy stuff that's so, a lot yeah it's big fire they were lucky they yeah. were lucky that that everybody survived and yeah other than just a few you know ankle injuries and things like that on out of that whole summer they actually fared pretty luckily well yeah so absolutely man yeah yeah and then, you know, I'm not going to go into everything of all of those years, but every year there was something cool and different that happened. You know, another big salmon river fire yeah. over in Idaho in uh, 86 that we worked on. Um, so you got real familiar with salmon country, is what you're saying? Yeah. You know, the Bitterroot went there a lot because we were, the, we were at the time the closest IR crew to that country. All makes sense. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The sawtooth hotshots were 
quite a ways down, you know, past Stanley there somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, we were really the closest crew, so we did get called to go down there quite a bit. Dang. So. Get you yeah. some good, good hiking shit being up in that oh, country. Oh, man. Right? You know, and then 87 was a real slow season until late, and we ended up spending two and a half months down on the Klamath um, during the latter part of that summer. Oh, I think we had, I think we had a hunt, 200 hours of overtime by the time late August came along. And by mid-November, we had 750. So we got a lot late. Yeah. Yeah, we made That's three wild. trips down there. We went the first time down to the Klamath, and we're right there when the inversions, the legendary inversions were going on. Oh. So smoky and, you know, tramped around a lot cat lines and six inch of pulverized you know dirt and all this stuff and yeah that first roll was 26 days and all of us had throat you know throat problems and some people on some of the crews got walking pneumonia oh, it was really cold down under the inversion and super smoky so smoky you could hardly see Jeez. and then when the inversions would break the fires would just rip you know that, that smoke cloud and would disperse and the fires would just go nuts up high Man, and you couldn't do much of anything then you know because it was just so dangerous so you'd try and do stuff early yeah but you never knew when exactly the inversion was going to break so it was always this this feather that you were walking along you know to try and decide when it was going to be oh. how late you could how long you could stay or when you ought to leave so stressful oh really stressful yeah we came back and we went back about three days later and we're there for another couple of weeks. Same exact spot? Nope. A little bit oh. different. Oh, good. A little bit different. A couple of really smoky days, but um, better conditions, except for just a few. We hiked into the Trinity Alps Wilderness. Oh, cool. That's, yeah, that's pretty area. It was beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It was really beautiful. Always wanted to get a jump up there, up in the Alps, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was it was cool. Didn't get to see much of it other than right where we were, but yeah, it was really beautiful. And then we came back home, and then shortly after that, so the Silver Fire down in southern Oregon, near Gold Beach, inland from there and other places, oh, yeah. was going on, and... So as it turned out, you know, Don Mackey was a local kid from here in Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he'd been on the Sula Brush Crew in 86, and he went on a roll with us late season in 86. Oh, gotcha. And he, he rookied in, at Missoula, the jump base, in 87. And so Don's first fire jump was the IA of the Silver Fire. Really? It started late one afternoon, and they ordered all kinds of jumpers from Missoula and other places, Redding even. Redding was pretty tapped out, though, so I don't think they went right off the bat. Oh, gotcha. But the Missoula jumpers left really early in the morning and flew down there, and Man. I ate it. And when they, Jeff Kenderman was the jumper in charge. Oh, yeah. And it was Mackey's first fire jump. Oh, cool. Yeah, and uh, he, he talked about it with us at length later on yeah but yeah they got they got there and they barely started making line and things went went started going really bad oh. and some of the jumpers 
had to retreat down toward the bottom of this drainage because they couldn't get back up to the Hellespot. And then Leslie Anderson, who was one of the women who was on the, was a jumper. Um, I think she'd been around a couple of years by then. Oh yeah. She broke her ankle on the, the, the jump. Oh, and so they're trying to get her out of harm's way, you know, and still try to deal with the fire and Kinderman just, so send the helicopter back in. We need to get out of here. Yeah. And so they luckily got out of there. And then that thing just went nuts for two and a half months or whatever. Oh, man. Yeah. And our third trip was a trip, that trip down to the Silver Fire. And Mackie got to go with us. Oh, really? So we heard all about the IA and them trying to get Leslie out of there and all the stuff that was going on. Man. Yeah, yeah. Brutal. And then you had, uh, local, like, a, a resource that was familiar with the, with the local area then, you know? Yeah, but we, we were in a totally different area. Then. I mean, it was a big fire, 90,000 oh. 90, acres or something like that. Oh, So, so our trip was, it was pretty mellow, really. I mean, compared to those first two, two trips down to the Klamath, um, the worst of the silver fire was over. We started when we first got there digging contingency line, big contingency line, miles long, Ooh. way out in the middle of nowhere yeah. along these ridges, ridge to ridge to ridge to ridge. And I've got a picture of it that I took, oh. you know, and it, it was just a huge wide opening. I, it was probably, it was probably 15 feet wide or 20 feet wide maybe. And the, the non- well, the fire was a long way from it, but it was in, just in case they had to burn out. I still wonder how that would have worked. Yeah. But there was so much chaparral and brush and stuff that the away from the fireside was just this giant miles-long wall of you know debris. manzanita and debris and stuff like that because yeah. there was no place else to put it. You know, yeah. They called it the Burma Road after the. <laughs> after the Burma Road in the in World War II and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was funny because we were still digging on it and they were already rehabbing the back end of it five miles away because oh, wow. the fire wasn't going to get there. And it just seemed kind of like, uh, so is there really a reason why we're doing yeah, this? Why, why are we still plowing forward <laughs> on this plan? And they finally just called it off. And then nobody worked on it anymore. There wasn't any need to. Oh, so we ended up, what we ended up doing was we started breaking up into into small groups and we'd helicopter it to these different areas and then just rehab little chunks of line. Oh, nice. So it was pretty mellow, really. That was really cool, though, helicopter little chunks and rehab. Yeah, yeah. And then we'd all meet back up at the end of the day somewhere and then we had our rigs with us and then we'd drive to the camp. Oh, nice. Yeah. We had a good R&R while we were down there. and R&R &R in place then? They... We got to motel up in Crescent City, California, for a couple of days. Oh, cool. Yeah, and so about six or seven of us were interested in... Redwood National Park was really close by. Oh, So yeah. we just wanted to go do that. But all the rest of the folks, Mackie and all the rest of the folks on our crew, chartered a fishing boat out of Crescent City. Oh, cool. Yeah, and... uh they caught a ton of stuff. They all caught their limit. They caught all kinds of bass and all these fish, yeah. lots of fish. Man. And the catering service at the camp had told us, because they told them we were going to go, they said, hey, if you guys catch a lot of fish and you want, we will cook your fish special just for your crew. Oh, man, that's really cool. And they did it. Wow. They did it. 
That's amazing. Yep, we were there. That was right about Halloween, and they also had a pumpkin carving contest. Oh, was, cool. I mean, these people had been at these this camp had been going on. These type one teams just kept rotating in, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and so what a nice break, fresh fish, and then and then pumpkin carving like that. Especially yep. at the end of the season like that, where everyone's probably getting a little wore out, you know. Yeah, we we're we we're pretty tired by then, you know. I mean that that ordeal, that first that first roll there, um, with the inversion being so bad and lung issues and everything, um, I don't think you ever totally recovered for the rest of the season, really. You know, yeah, I need some good. But we did time okay, off. but yeah, we had gotten permission. They had given us copies of. Uh, paperwork related to the particulate matter and all that stuff in case mm. anything health-wise ever happened to any of us down the line. Yeah. I've still got it at home to this very day. Smart, kind of like a... Yeah, just in case, you know, something that could be... Well, I mean, with the hot shot crew, how do you know, though, really? I mean, we were in dense smoke so many times Camp. after that and before that. that Camping you know, it. I don't know how you could really specifically say it was a silver fire, but... Yeah, it was kind of like similar like what, what you do like with a CA-1. We felt like CA-1 yeah. like smoke exposure. and Right, yeah. right. I know because I think about the same things, like all the times you've slept in a camp that was smoked in yeah. all night, you know. and Lots of times. Yeah. More times than you'd like to remember. Yeah, you wake up and your eyes are all puffy, you know, and your sinuses are just Yeah, wrecked. but we ended up being... We were there the final day of the fire before it was actually contained. We were the last hot shot crew in the two and a half months to to leave. Oh wow! So that was cool. That's and really we, cool. We got our about a week later. We got a really really cool letter from the IC of the camp. You know, for for the for the help we'd given them and all that yeah. stuff, which was. That's really a big, cool. That's a big honor for sure. It was. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then we came home and burned a bunch more stuff on Darby, you know. And, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Man. And then 88 was monumental year, too. So the Yellowstone fires, We right? were involved on three trips, 55 days over there. Oh, wow. Yeah. 55 days in Yellowstone? Yeah. Yeah, actually, only 20, well, about 30 of them were actually in the park. The very first fire we went to was the fan fire up in the northwest corner of the park. Oh, okay. Huge lodgepole, huge, huge. There were lodgepole that were, you know, you couldn't close your hands around them. They were wow, just gigantic. That's so rare. And it started out, you know, looking like it, what we were doing, us and some other crews, was going to be doable. But after a few days, man, that thing just decided to stand up and go, and then they just pulled us all off because it was... No roads, no, no way to resupply or anything, and there was just Jeez. nothing you could do. Yeah. And then I think I mentioned this to you, but our division soup on that fire was a, was a gentleman named Paul Gleason. Yeah. And Paul Gleason, for those that know anything about Wildland Fire, was the one that established LCES. Really, it was just a synthesis of things that we all already did. But yeah, lookouts, the, communication, escape routes, and safety zones. Yep. LCES. Yep. He put that together, and he didn't put that together until after the dude fire in 1990. Oh. He came out with it in 91. Oh, so we knew. That was a formal thing to just, during training, one of the things that was pounded into us, you know, was to remember to have all of those things that you just mentioned paramount in your decision making processes and stuff yeah so anyway he's our division soup and 
he was pretty famous. He he started in Southern California back in the fifties. Oh, wow. um, and he was on. I don't remember which hotshot crew, but the Loop Fire was a famous fire out of Los Angeles where 13 or so folks from the El Carrizo IR crew got burned up. They were digging line down a chute. Oh. The, the fire got them. And his crew was there. And that was one of his first experiences, you know, with that, that kind of stuff happening. Yeah. And being a student of fire, you know, he just he learned all the time, just like all of us tried to do. But he was the soup of the zigzag hotshots in oh. Oregon. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we knew that. We'd run into them before, but, you know, hadn't worked directly with him. But he was our division soup, and I had forgotten this. And when I was, and I actually, I have a part of, or I have that particular rating in my 88 album that I put together. Oh, yeah. But I'd forgotten about it until jay or not jay but until cash gave me that thumb drive and i was re-looking at some of that and i was like wow paul gleason he was our division soup that's right you know yeah yeah that's and super cool and he gave us a super good rating and he, he was really impressed we used to carry around these small it was made by home light we had two, a couple of them a small plastic basically gasoline powered pump called a water bug oh yeah they were really small they didn't put out a lot of pressure but the thing that was cool about them was that they were so small that you could take them almost anywhere and we used them a bunch on on fires actually we had after well before the yellowstone fires we went to um, a fire up on uh, rock creek Oh, yeah, yeah. Up north of Lake Como. There. There's still a big yeah. fire scar up there. Oh, yeah. And we had those water bugs, and they ran. You you could only use toy hose, garden hose. But if you had even a small, like, water hole pond, you could, you know, put the, the draft part into that thing. And if you had a downhill dropper, it was flat. You couldn't run them, you know, like three hose lengths with any power, but... If you had something that was fairly close, they were great for mop-up. Yeah. And we had those over there on that fanfire. And cool. Gleason commented on the radio that he was really impressed by our small pumps and our ability to, you know, take the initiative on that fire and everything like that. And that, that you know, meant a lot to us just because he was a well-known, long-running hotshot soup. Yeah, legend. And, and if, if he... He didn't have to say that. And if he said that about our crew, it made us feel really good. Yeah, you know you're doing something. He's not just saying and it to now, say it. now, you know, looking back on it and the legend he became. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was really cool. That is, yeah. yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah. And, like, so at that point, you said he started in the 50s. So he had about 30-some years probably in at that point at 88, huh? Who, me? No, uh, Gleason. Oh, yeah, probably. Well, actually, he... He is about the same age I am. Oh, really? Or he, well, he's passed away now, but yeah. he and I were both about the same age at that point in time. Oh, cool. Yeah. Man. So in 88, I was 42, and he was right about the same. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But before we went to that Yellowstone fire, we drove to Michigan and Minnesota on a 36-day roll. Back to the Pete, or what? We went all over the place. Oh, we, were really? in, we were in uh, in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. Oh, cool. And then in Lower Peninsula, and we were in Minnesota, too. We went to a bunch of fires, did 
bunch of really cool stuff back there. We broke up into, for part of it, we broke up into two two ten person groups. Oh yeah. One of them was nine because Bill would bump back and forth from one group to the other. Oh, gotcha. But we stayed in different different small towns about twenty five miles apart, and were tied to these two different ranger stations. And if they got a fire and it was big enough, we would go with them with our truck, you know, or our vans and stuff. Yeah. They had a pickup truck for us to to help haul our gear back there. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, we did a bunch of stuff back there. And we came home, and like I said, then we did that Rock Creek fire by Lake Como. We hadn't been to a single Yellowstone fire yet, and we'd already been out a lot. Yeah, man. Yeah. We and went to that fan fire and then came back and went to a big fire over by Helena. Or at, yeah, over by Helena, and then we went to Clover Mist, which was one of the huge Yellowstone fires. Oh, and our whole time on twenty six days, twenty five days on Clover Mist was north of the of the park in Wyoming on the Shoshone Forest, oh. where Clover Mist came out, and that was really wild. There were a lot of crazy big runs and stuff like that, and Honestly, in that whole time period, we we never dug very much line because by 10 o'clock in the morning, the conditions were so severe that you had to be out of wherever you were. Really? Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's, that's, a lot of hurry, try to do stuff in hopes you're going to do more. Oh, nope, we can't. Got to go. Pull out, yeah. You pull out, yeah. Man. Yeah. And we did this. We, the Lassen Hotshot crew showed up from Northern Cal, and we worked, they and we worked together on Clover Mist for a long time, and we had some time to prep this big burnout, um, and we flipped the coin, you know, to see who got to do the burn, and we won. Oh, cool. So they held for us, they and some other crews, and it was a good, big, complicated one, you know, you had to... The main fire was quite a ways off, but it was coming. Yeah. And so we had to send a couple of people pretty far in and have them like me to make a big figure eight with their torches of fire. And then we were out on the line, the rest of us with torches. And then Lassen was holding with us. It was plumbed along the edge. Oh, it was pretty right. long, about a mile long or so. And then when, when the main fire... The idea was to, to hopefully make a big enough fire with that interior burn that the main fire would meet it, and it kind of did. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it worked. It kind of did. And oh, then cool. the rest of our crew on the line lit the edge when there was a good suck toward the center there. Pulling it all it in. really pulled it in. And then we just kept going down the line like that. And That's I was awesome. a squad leader, and so my squad was down on the lower part so we got to the bottom first and uh it was cool because it it the bottom part we lit it across the bottom and that part was already secure on the edge it wasn't going to get out and our bottom part just sucked up into the rest of it it was it was so perfect that was the first the first thing that happened on that clover mist fire that was any sort of control at all. Yeah, and probably making any kind of like positive effect on the fire or on the suppression side, I guess, of it. Of it. And then, except though, within oh, three no. or four days, it blew out again and negated all that. Oh, so 
but it was good for a couple of days. And so there were, there were photographers from the United Press International, all of the, all of the major networks, CNN. I mean, there were people from everywhere there. Oh, wow. Yeah, with, with guides, you know, so they wouldn't get in the way. Yeah. But we had some that were following us down on this burn thing. And when we got down to the bottom of it. Yeah. So this, this guy that was there was taking pictures. You know, we, he, we, we gave him, it was okay with us as long as he stayed out of the way. Yeah, yeah, and, and we safe. had one of the, Bill, you know, kind of pulled out um, and talked to him and kind of gave him the lowdown of, okay, this is what we're trying to do and everything. Yeah. And he took this picture of me lighting down at the bottom. Oh, cool, Reen. And... After we got home, he, so we were home by November 8th from our last role. And so he, he sent this, he sent us a letter and he said that some of the pictures were really good and he was sending them in to see if he could get them in magazines. And he said that he wanted to know if that was okay with us, if he did that. And he asked us, he said, you can reproduce the pictures for your own use if you'd like a copy of the picture, but please don't try and sell it or anything because i mean this is the way i make my living you know yeah and so we answered back and said it's cool and his last line was uh the january 1989 issue of audubon magazine might use the photo of reen an article they were going to do on the fires so this photo made it into audubon magazine really big article and it didn't come out until until uh january of 89 and I was down at my mom's place for the winter in San Diego. She still lived down there. She didn't even move up to, to Hamilton until 91. Oh, yeah. And so Sister Sandy and her dog were on a little driving trip. So they stayed at our house with, with us for a couple of days. And cool. she and I were in a Barnes & Noble. And I looked on the shelves, and the, the Audubon issue was there. So I went over and grabbed it. And sure enough, there it was. Really? Yeah. So I, I yelled across the thing, Sandy. Sandy, my picture's in Audubon. <laughs> so, yeah. So the... Famous. Yeah. You know? That's a mo- awesome. A moment of history, right? Yeah. So right after he took this picture, when our burn really got going, mm-hmm. I handed my camera to Bill, and he took... He took this picture of me. Oh, Wow. Man, right in it there. Like, I, so, I can see you blocking the heat of the glove. I've been there a few times. This is when it started pulling in and going up into the upper part, you know, oh, to burn yeah. off the rest of it. It was so hot. What a great and photo, man. We were we were so jazzed. And so that drip torch says Rapid River. Oh, Rapid yeah. River was a ranger station in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. Oh, wow. And when we traded out uh, drip, to, drip torches, we had some bad ones, they just gave us one of theirs oh man and so we had it for the whole rest of the summer that's so cool rapid river minnesota got a yeah or michigan got a little plug there yeah that's super so, cool so it was really cool yeah do you yeah. Know, do you know where the drip torch ended up uh it was we had it for years i have no man, idea it's probably it's probably in the corner of the yeah, shop or something it'd be cool somewhere. if it was still around I that's don't what know. i was thinking because they just retired you know i mean you probably know they just retired the, that style of drip torch just a few years yeah. back and i got a couple of the old ones that i, I do too yeah, yeah they just kind of decommissioned them you know i mean they still work fine but yeah you just couldn't use them anymore i was gonna make mine to a lamp yeah Put a little late in actually, the end of the week actually i i was given a brand new one 
Oh, really? Yeah, and that's been my plan is to make an, a lamp out of it. Well, I went over to Powell, um, or excuse me, to Finn one time, Ranger Station, when Stu Hoyt left West Fork as the suppression FM, AFMO. He was the FMO over there for a while, and we went to a lookout meeting while I was over there, yeah. and somebody was retiring from the the supervisor's office over there in Grangeville, and they had a, a drip torch lamp on his desk. Oh, so man. I took pictures of it, you know? Yeah, I'd love to see that. that. the one I have, I mean, it's still in the box. It's brand new. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that I'd like to make a lamp out of it, too. It looks yeah. like it'd be pretty easy. Yeah, yeah, because I, yeah, I, I was kind of mulling over some folks. It might even been Hanson we were talking about doing it, maybe. And, and, uh, Probably, yeah. Yeah, it won't be too bad, you know? And you can get, like, those flicker LEDs. Yeah. So I was thinking about maybe doing something like that, just, like, putting the wick and then put the wire down into the, into yeah. the actual jug part itself. So we went... We weren't home very long from Clovermist. There were a couple of big fires right up at the head of uh, Rock Creek on Darby. Yeah. And we went up there for a couple of days and helped out. And that's and then, November right, at that point? Uh, no, this was still, this was like mm, in October, October, maybe in the first week of October or something like that. Oh, gotcha. And then we got a, another order to go back to Yellowstone again. Oh. It had already snowed at the end of Clover Mist, so the worst was over. You know, once it snowed, it never really well, warmed up, but it didn't didn't get like it was before. Oh, it was just too late in the season. You know, Yellowstone starts getting cold fast. Yeah. So we drove back over to the North Fork Fire, and we were in the park the whole time. We spent the first 10 days um, up on the central plateau in the park, was an area where nobody had been able to go and see what had happened other than a few planes flying, you know, recon. Oh, yeah. And so there was still quite a bit of stuff not running, but that they wanted to contain. Hmm. So we and some other crews camped for about 10 days just below the edge of the rim there. And then we, we hiked up there and, uh, and worked really on cool. that. Yeah. And then they moved us into West Yellowstone Everybody left except we were the last crew on all of that 15,000 people that had been involved in the suppression in Yellowstone. Oh. We were the last crew left other than a park crew. Oh, really? Yep. Dang. And so we did rehab for the whole rest of the time. Um, and our our Type 3 team were the Missoula Jumpers. Oh, really? Who... We knew all of them. Wayne yeah. Williams and all those guys were over there, you know. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, and so we we were camped at Madison Junction for a while, but it got so terribly cold that they disbanded all that, and we moved into West Yellowstone and moteled up oh. the whole rest of the time, which was smart because, I mean, it was getting down into, you know, 10 degrees, 12 degrees, 6 degrees at night and stuff. Yeah, a little higher elevation over there. would have been really miserable. Yeah. Yeah, but we'd... Uh, We'd go to the Jumpers Motel, the Bill and the squad leaders, and we'd find out what their plan was for the day. And the plan most days was to go to the West Yellowstone Airport, and we were going to fly out in the middle of nowhere and re rehab little stretches of line, brush them in and stuff like that that yeah. had been made to try and stop different parts of the North Fork Fire. And so we did a lot of small group stuff for a week and a half or so two weeks maybe Man. yeah like three or four of us had, or if they need more a second helicopter load they'd go back and get another group and bring us and we'd fly out to some some meadow in the middle of nowhere some place that not too many humans probably get to 
saw geysers flying out to some of these places that I had no idea there were any geysers other than just in the geyser basins, you know? Yeah, same. Hot pools and all this stuff, you know? Yeah. It was really cool. That is awesome, flew man. Back, flew past all these incredible burn mosaics and stuff on the way to get out there up on these mountains and everything, you know? Yeah. yeah, and then we'd finish what we were doing, and we'd call back in that we were done, and the helicopter would come back and get us, and we'd meet up with the jumpers the next morning and do the same thing, go somewhere else the next day. Man, what a dream, and that was that was kind of towards the end of your season then, doing that? Yep. Oh, man, what a way to wind down the season, man. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, 55 days total over there on those three trips. Oh, wow. Yep, and we came back, and we did a few few low-key control burns and some piles and stuff by then and i don't know it was it was like an almost 900 hour season for us jeez you know it wasn't too bad yeah that's a good run for I, sure you know in those days anything over 600 we all thought was phenomenal so yeah you know <laughs> it was it was definitely good yeah yeah the, the more the uh, uh thousand hour seasons is more of a, a newer kind of thing i mean like within kind of my my time frame yeah. i think you know yeah some of the cali crews would do it because they just they'd start so early and end so late you know that they'd get a lot more going on and they were close to the southwest arizona and new mexico yeah so they they do a lot of stuff just had a longer season than we do here in region one for sure yeah totally and yeah now it seems like pretty much everyone can get a thousand hour season even if you're on the district and yeah they used to be really hard to get a thousand hour season on, as a district person you know oh for sure yeah i mean even the dispatchers are getting yeah hours like that you know sometimes yeah. it's crazy it's crazy it's too much <laughs> 90 90 was a good one because bill so i'd already you know was crew boss qualified at least on paper you know in 84 before um i got on the crew in 85 oh gotcha um walt smith who had been our who was a longtime jumper and who was our afmo at sula he saw to it that all of us got the opportunity to be qualified as squad bosses or higher if we were ready yeah he got us got us going on that stuff you know it's really good it was a little different you didn't really have to do all kinds of trainee gigs you know it just kind of depended yeah and so um i had that crew boss gig at sula in 84 in the fall and so did a few short-term crew boss gigs on the hotshot crew when bill would accept another brief assignment like as a strike team leader on our division or division soup then some of us would get if we had the qual we'd get to bump up and you know act as the foreman for a day three days whatever you know yeah 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 and so it done you know some of that and joe thompson who also was on the sula crew and went to the the hotshot crew at the same time i did he was also in the same boat he was our foreman uh in 88 uh as a gs5 that's nuts <laughs> yeah yeah and so in 90 bill got a detail to spend a couple of months working on west fork and so the request was put in through the region and Joe got to be the acting soup and I got to be the acting assistant, essentially. Oh, cool. For the season. Yeah. That's so really cool. here we are. Everybody on the whole hot track crew is a temporary. 
including the two leaders, right? Yeah. And away we went. We went to Arizona, New Mexico for a long time, for a long roll. Went to Texas, did a whole bunch of cool stuff, you know, everything everything went really, really went well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But- It'll be on 14 we days. Like, we like to feel that, yeah, that happened a lot back yeah, in those that's days. That's what I figured, yeah. It wasn't real strict yet then yeah. at all. Um, and, you know, Joe and I, we like to feel, and we talked about it. It's like, I feel good about it, if you feel good about it, and we will constantly bounce <coughs> ideas off one another, you know? Yeah. It's just, just like Bill always did, too. I mean, he was the boss, but he respected the... the, uh, the knowledge of his assistant so to speak and and squad leaders you know and they'd converse a lot i mean i watched a lot of that those first couple of years on the crew probably learned a lot then too hey yeah yeah like okay what do you let's see here we are in this fire yeah what do you think what do i think we do and then i'd listen in and see if it was even close to what they were thinking and sometimes it was a little off but sometimes it was you know pretty close yeah which is but, really smart on your part because you build those slides and you, know, you start kind of coming up with your own plan and what you do in their shoes yeah, and yeah see, see how it plays out and we did good we had the crew the whole summer i mean we were down there for a long time in arizona new mexico and texas and then we went to a bunch of fires in idaho and did a lot of cool stuff and then bill came back at the end and we went back to doing what we were doing man what a good experience for you guys though it was cool though Man. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that we pulled it off and it went really well. And, yep. You know. Built confidence in, in Bill and probably everyone else in the organization. Like, yeah, see, the yeah, crew was happy, cool. you know, and we made a lot of hours and all that good stuff. And 91 and 2 were good years also. In 92, we went back down to the Salmon, way up the Salmon, beyond West Fork, up almost to the Gospel Hump country up there. Oh. Us and Lolo and Flathead and I think the St. Joe was there. We were all there. Oh, working really? pretty pretty close by one another and the crazy fire stuff i mean on those big open dangerous hillsides you know and yeah you couldn't you couldn't uh you couldn't go direct it was impossible because it was so dangerous stuff would always roll out so yeah the fires here you had to drop three ridges quite a long way away and try and dig line up in hopes that you could get to a point where you'd be able to maybe burn it out. But before we'd even finish, all of us digging, all those crews digging, before we'd even finish getting up one of these slopes, and they'd plateau out. You know, you dig and dig and dig and dig and dig, and it's hotter than hell, and up oh, there's the top. You'd get to it. It was just a little flat spot before it went on, and you couldn't see that from down where you were working. Yeah. And then the same thing had happened. It was oh, just a little false was, summit like. It was really brutal. It was oh. so hot and everything like that. And before you'd ever get to a finish point, the fire would laterally cross and negate oh. it. You drop back three ridges do it again a couple of days later do it again man really it was just so so brutal you know man, <laughs> kind of taking the air out of you i mean what a, what a uh exercise in mental toughness i bet you yeah. know yeah we were we were all spiked out down there in the middle of nowhere you know and we weren't getting we weren't getting real we weren't getting enough food let's put it that way oh no so bill meadows was one of the senior jumpers back in those days in missoula and he'd come to a lot of these fires the jumpers were really cool about starting right off the bat as soon as people were qualified getting them 
you know, squad boss, crew boss, strike team leader training, yeah. division soup training, safety officer training and all that so that they were so they were versatile and they could go to fires and sometimes an entire, you know, jumper crew would end up doing overhead positions. Yeah. And we worked with them on lots of fires that way, which was cool because we knew them all. Yeah. And they knew us and the other Region 1 crews, especially us because we were so close. Yeah. And that Bill had been a Missoula jumper, you know. Yeah, that helps a lot too. It was really cool. And so, yeah, Bill Meadows was a safety officer down there with us, you know. And he came in a little later and we're like, this is crazy. We aren't getting enough food to do this stuff. Yeah, burning way too many calories. And he called ops on the team and was like, you need to put an end to this. These crews are digging all this line. We're never able to complete anything because the fire will, you know. Jump it. Jump it. You got to get him more food. And so he goes, it needs to happen today. Yeah. And it did. That boy, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody paid any attention to us. But, you yeah. know, when he did that, it did. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. We had, we had uh, mishaps down there. We had Vertals doing support, water support for us. And most of them were really good, but they're a big, you know, all the Columbia helicopters' vertals were red and white. Oh. That was their paint scheme. Oh, gotcha. And this big jet black vertal shows up. I'm like, what the heck is this, you know? Yeah. Well, it turns out that Columbia had bought that helicopter from Donald Trump. No way. It was used in New York City to shuttle people from JFK, uh, people, I guess, that dealt in whatever businesses he was doing, you know, yeah. Trump building. They used it to f ferry these people from JFK and LaGuardia to the top of this building. Holy cow. And so Columbia had purchased it so recently that they hadn't had a chance to paint it yet. Oh. And so the pilot that was flying it, he was good, but he was fairly a fairly newer Vertal fire pilot. And he, Bill and I were up in this area of the fire. And, you know, we would always make sure, especially with those giant ships like that, that they knew exactly what we wanted. And we had confirmation that they saw us. And Smart. we'd always tie ribbon onto a combi or a tool so that, you know, mirror flash them, they'd see it, get in close, do you see where we are? Swirling my combi with, yep, know where you are. What we want you to do is this. We want you to go across the top of this fire. We're gonna pull out, do you understand? Yeah. Yes, we pull out and they do it. Well, he came in too low and too close and, you know, started breaking timber off and stuff and Ooh. bill almost got hit oh no and we had to pull out and it it spotted the part of the fire and we had to all evacuate that area then oh no <laughs> start over in another place jeez that, that could be a little frustrating it was crazy yeah and then we did a big burnout they finally decided that this was not working this this having to go from Ridge to ridge to ridge and not working. So they pulled us all way back by Shep Ranch, which was a big, old, neat guest ranch down there. Oh, cool. And they found a, a spot that they were going to ping pong it. Oh. Yeah. Nice. And then we would carry fire across the bottom by the river 
after they ping ponged it so it'd connect with it connect the dots you know from the bottom and stuff like that yeah yeah and it worked really good we did an all-night burnout from the bottom basically all you had to do was go in with a lot of big pondos and pine needles tons of them you know yeah. up and down in that country and so you just go in about 100 feet and light a strip and we just let it basically back all night Oh, awesome. You know, you didn't have to do much of anything. We didn't want to kill the trees. No. A couple of the trees got, a couple of the crews got a little overactive, and they, they killed some really big pondos. But oh, man. Our section worked out really good. We just let it back and do a little couple of drops here and there of torch fuel, you know. And then uh, it worked great. Oh, and we awesome. were all done. We'd been up all night. Everybody was super tired. We were, you know, hanging out by the river, just kind of dozing and relaxing. And they were finishing down from us a ways, down river a ways, they were finishing the, the ping pong machine. And yeah. all of a sudden we heard Steve Karkinen, who was the soup of the Lolo at the time, he goes, called ops on the team and he says, do you know that there's a new fire right across the river from where you're dropping the ping pong balls? And we all got up and looked and this fire was just ripping up oh, this no. huge timber, I mean like really ripping up. Yeah. And, They'd had a misfire, as it turned out, with the ping pong ball machine when the when the ship made a turn to come back to do another run. Yeah. And it had dropped some balls over there. Oh, on the wrong side. It was gone, Man. you know, so... That will happen. Yep. So we... They had jet boats down there that were helping out shuttle people here and there. And we got ordered to go across the river because the Polybemus Ranch was over there. It's another old ranch that was privately owned and it gets ranch now oh. and they wanted to save it shep was okay but Polly Bemis was in danger you guys, so you guys were on no sleeve we commandeered a part of our crew went up to see if they could help flathead with that escape and nobody could do anything oh, yeah. so i had the other part of the crew and they jet boated us across the river and I had part of the Don Latham and part of our crew stay back. And it's like there was a ton of equipment over there, pumps and just all kinds of things. And I went, that stuff's going to go fast. Grab everything you can possibly find in the way of pumps, hoses, gas, all that stuff. Sling that it, sling that it up. I don't care what order it's in. Just get it over, get it ready because we want it before we lose it. Smart, yeah. You know, this is on crew net, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so they did, and they called me, and we had it slung over to our side. So then we started the process of Structure Pro and the Polybemus Ranch. You know, we had to do all kinds of stuff, shape, shape, or shape, sweep pine needles oh. off of the roofs of buildings yeah. and stuff like that. Cedar shake roofs, or? Some of them were. Okay, sure. Some of them were metal, but some of the older ones were. Yeah. And they had a lot of buildings there, too. And so we we did that, and then there was a nice beach there where we could put the pumps, and we had about eight Mark threes, and that's awesome. We did a big recon of the of the whole area, and by then by then the rest of our crew was back, you know, to help us mm -hmm. where all the buildings were, and we made kind of like a drawing on a sheet of paper of the basic layout and the pump, and it's like okay, let's let's have a different. We'll have two Mark threes just sitting here ready to rock for backup, but we'll have these other five, and we'll number, we'll number where each of them goes and have it on this drawing, yeah. and then, you know, pump number one will go here, pump number two will go here, all that stuff, so that 
the couple of folks that were going to be the pump monitors. And we had some really good folks. Phil Shomerdine was on our crew that year. He later became the FMO at Sealy Lake. He just retired last summer. Oh, really? But he, Phil, Phil was a pump king. Yeah. And he was really good. So he was the one, he with Helper, the Helper were down there all the time. And we could just call him, you know, and go, Phil, shut off pump number one. We don't need it for a while. We, we're good, you know, and keep number two, three, four, and five going or whatever. And it worked out really good. Man, that's we awesome. We set up sprinklers. We did all kinds of stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Saved, yeah. It, saved everything? Yep. Oh, cool. Did the, fire get, did the fire get close to you guys? Not too terribly close, mainly because right off the bat, too, that they gave us a Vertol to wet the forest down behind the ranch, you know, beyond where the hose lays and all that stuff were going to be. Oh, gotcha. And so my job for half of a day was just to keep this Vertol busy, just soaking the countryside back oh, there. Yeah, awesome. And the river was right there. The turnaround was like three minutes, you know, for yeah. a big, big, like thousand gallon bucket or whatever it was, you know. Yeah. And it was really, cool. It was really exciting and fun. That's cool. And the guy that was the ranch manager, there were no guests there. The guy that was a ranch manager had been a a backup pitcher for the Mets or something oh, at really? one point in time. He was a cool guy and he he's like, Yeah. I've got a four-wheeler, you guys can use it, you know, to go from place to place. And I've got, there's five coffee pots here, and I'll have coffee ready for you in the morning. And he opened up the big lodge, and we could go in there after hours, you know, if we wanted and relax and take a shower and Man. take it easy. And, yeah. and then the only other cool thing that happened there, other than that whole deal, was just a really, really interesting Got a few more jet boat rides riding from one side to the other and all that. Man, that's the, cool. One of the gals on our crew had, uh, there was poison ivy and stuff oh. all over the place, poison oak and stuff down there in the river bottom. And Jenny had gotten some in around her eye. Oh. And so Don Latham was a paramedic who was on our crew. And we had a couple of EMTs also. And Don was trying to figure out what we had that might work. And so they never stopped the rafters, you know, from raft trips coming down the river. And there was like a cement ramp that went down to the edge of the salmon river and this these three rafts pulled in and a couple of guys walked up to where we were working you know at the ranch and yeah. were asking about the fire and this that and the other and don was there working on jenny's eye and he said what's the matter and we're like oh she got some poison ivy oak whatever whichever it was i can't yeah. remember now in her eye and don's paramedic but he's just kind of trying to figure out what in our meager supplies we might have that'll work and he says we've got two doctors down in that boat on this float trip you want me to send them up here that's pretty handy and we're like yeah you know yeah. so he goes and get them they have their black bags with them and everything you know no way. yeah i think doctors just always do that i guess yeah and they came up and he had some he had some better stuff for working on poison ike or ivy or oak you know tube stuff and he gave it to us oh some kind of cream huh yeah oh cool yeah so it, it worked like, for her? yeah man i mean whoever figures the odds know, that yeah that's happen. that is handy yeah. man that is amazing yeah yeah it was cool yeah and then you know that takes us up to 93 which was a pretty slow year on the whole till the end we had a roll to southern cal in late September, early October, and then another one back to Southern Cal in late October, early November to the Mare fire 
the first one was in Santa Barbara. Oh, gotcha. And it was famous, became famous. It was a pretty good-sized fire, but became famous because at that point in time, in 93, I think there were only like 55 hotshot crews in the whole country, in all of the United States. Only oh, 55, huh? And every crew that was still on the books, 45 of them, were all at that fire. Oh, really? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That is nuts. That would be something to see, man. It's quite the show in the big camp, you know, yeah. <laughs> with all of these crews there. And man, I would have loved to have been there. Yeah, yeah, it was a good one, yeah. And then we went to the Malibu fire. We went to a small fire in the Santa Barbara Orange Show. was closest, so we staged there. Oh. Santa Ana, the fire was out. The little fire was, well, wait, let me say. Yeah, the first fire actually was... Right behind, it was on Mount Wilson where the big telescope is, right behind uh, Pasadena where the Rose Bowl is. Oh, gotcha, yeah. Yeah, so we were on that for a little bit, and then when that died down, we thought we were going home, and we were hanging out, and nope, we're going to keep the crews, the Santa Ana's are still pumping, you know, and yeah. we don't want to lose all these Type 1 crews that are here and everything. So that Monday, that we were there hanging out all weekend, and that Monday, early afternoon, they had a big TV room and folks were watching live that a big fire had broken out up north of Malibu. And sure enough, we got the call to head, yeah. to head up there. And it was probably 70 miles from where we were to where that fire was north of Malibu there. But you could see it you as soon as we got on the freeway. Really? Yeah. yeah. Just cranking, huh? Yeah. Santa Ana's were driving it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a big one. Yeah. Man. A person, a couple of people had died, got trapped in a car, civilians. Oh, no. Up in the forest. They're in the brush fields and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and so that was bad. And, uh, bad deal. Yeah, and so we, uh, we, we headed that way. We didn't have any chainsaws. Delta wouldn't let us fly in the, from Missoula in the beginning of that trip. They wouldn't let us take our chainsaws on a commercial flight. Oh, really? So we got saws checked out at the camp for that first fire, and had to turn them back in, and oh. we approached them, Malibu. We're going we probably need sauce. They wouldn't give them to us, so they said, "Oh, they'll give you sauce at the new camp." Well, yeah, that didn't really quite work. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, we couldn't get any, and then oh, no. we called back to Darby and Bob McKee, Johnny's dad, was the mm -hmm. FMO then, and he authorized us. He says, "Go wherever you go, what, wherever you have to go. You know, hardware stores, wherever." And I authorize you to buy some saws. Well, we found three, but they were small saws. Oh, really? They were stills, but they weren't, you know, not like our fire saws. Yeah. But actually, for the brush, they were perfect. Oh, nice. It's just that they were small, and they kind of embarrassed our sawyers in front of <laughs> yeah. some of the other hotshot crews. Like toy saw. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, they, they were fine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But we got we couldn't go where we were supposed to go that first day when we got up to the area because the freeway was all closed, you know. And the secretary that answered the phone at the stranger station says, "Don't even come here. There's no. There's absolutely. I'm supposed to tell you. There's no. There's no place for you to go." Oh wow! It's like oh okay. So we were like, oh, what are we gonna do? We still didn't have a cell phone yet. Then this was all by phone booth and stuff. Oh wow! It's like, hey. The fire's in Malibu. Malibu's on the coast. I think I can remember from trips to L.A. when I lived down here and stuff, which freeways to take to get us over there. And the bus driver said, 
oh yeah I, i'm pretty sure i know how to get over there too you know yeah so we went over and we went right past hollywood and the kids got to see the sign and they got to see the columbia record building which looked like a big 45 rpm spindle oh really yeah a lot of the people on the crew had never been to california ever you oh know? wow so we got out to the coast at the foot of Pacific Coast Highway and Sunset Boulevard, right there by the beach. Oh, wow. And the road was closed up to Malibu, and there we were, you know, watching this giant column, and every once in a while a big blast of fire and black smoke would go up, which was a house. Oh, yeah. And a bunch of those were happening. And we we had no commo. We had nobody to check in with. We had nobody check on us. And structure engines had roar from uh, from the highway to up Pacific Coast Highway toward Malibu. And about half hour later, one of them had come back with the sides all scorched and everything, you know. Whoa. And we just decided right then, it's like, we're going to just stay right here until somebody comes and finds us yeah this smart. is just crazy you know yeah like especially so, all the all the water they have you know and they're a little more you know designed for that we, we stayed awake all night with uh the curb as our pillow in oh, that really? parking lot just watching the action and we saw a coast guard cutter come in really close to the point off malibu there we found out the next day that they thought, because Santa Ana's blow from east to west, oh. that this fire was going to go all the way down to the shoreline, and they were going to have to rescue civilians that jumped in, had to jump in the water to, in the ocean to, escape, to get away huh? from the fire. Jeez. Luckily, that didn't happen. Yeah, but you know, it was pretty freaky. That is freaky, man. I, I don't, I don't know anyone who's seen anything like that. You know, I, oh, it was crazy. Yeah, we helped leapfrog vehicles down the road from people living in Malibu who had more than one vehicle and oh. uh, couldn't drive them both. They'd drive one, drive it down a ways, lock it up, go back up, get the other one, drive it down. We're like, we're not doing anything. We, we'll help you do that, you know? So we helped ferry vehicles down the road. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because you drive some nice ones? J- Jim Leverton and I got a uh, a really nice Mercedes oh, car cool. that we were leapfrogging you know yeah and this was before the whole crew got involved with this stuff you know and so we knew where they were and so we drove this thing down to where this lady told us beyond the stoplight that she wanted it to go to and so jim rolled down the window i was driving he rolled down the window you know and we looked out toward the crew and i really loud i said Pardon me, do you happen to have any gray poupon? There was a commercial. <laughs> yeah, I remember the commercial. Yeah. And they're like, what are, you, what are you guys doing? Where did you get that car? And we said, this lady gave it to us. We just told them she gave it to us. Yeah, it's messed with like, them. They're like, nah. <laughs> like, no, nah, not really. We're just leapfrogging it for her. That's cool. But there man. were people flooding out of Malibu, leading horses, leading sheep. Whoa. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. You know, this huge tragedy is going on. Man, brutal, yeah. Yeah, it was crazy, yeah. So the next morning, somebody finally found us, and we ended up getting an assignment. And the way those Santa Ana fires, a lot of them work. I mean, they blow huge thousands of acres right off the bat, and then it's basically a mop-up show, you know, after that. Oh, the, wind, so, the winds die down. and Yep, oh, so nothing you. else intense really happened. Yeah, but that was that. Yeah. Jeez, I mean, that's pretty intense enough, though. It's starting off like that. Yeah, that was the end of that, you know? Yeah. 
And then we got New Soup in 94. Bill retired at the end of 93, and Steve Rawlings got the crew. He came from Oregon. And 94 was the gigantic year for us. Um, first time in those years I'd been on the crew that we topped 1,000 hours of overtime. Jeez. And, yeah, we started early, went to Arizona, New Mexico, um, went to a fire called the Ryan Fire. As soon as we got down there, we flew down. We didn't have our rigs during any of that trip. Oh. Um, we school busted most oh. all the whole the whole time. Yeah. We were down there a long time, about a month. Um, yeah, just about a month, maybe not quite. But that Ryan fire, our first fire, we, we drove all night. Once we got down there, we staged for a couple of days, and we got that assignment, and we drove to this fire. So we're way out in the middle of nowhere, timbered but sparse in places, super hot. We, we were supposed to meet this person who was going to tell us what was up at this viewpoint. And here's this fire, and it's just, it's big. It's spread out all over across this big canyon, you know. His instructions, we used to always use this as a training thing for folks on the crew and when we teach the Job Corps crews and stuff like that. His instructions to us were, this is called the Ryan Fire. It's a 1,000 acres. There's no aerial resources available at all. There's no other resources other than a 10-person local hand crew that's down there now. The IC's name is such and such, and he's riding around on, scouting on a horse. And it's just them and you. Do what you can. <laughs> and we're like <laughs> looking at one another. Yeah, copy that? Yeah, okay, copy that. You <laughs> know, and we got a hold of them. He gave us a frequency. We got a hold of them on the radio and found out where they were and hiked down to where they were and met up with them and... Uh, met up with the IC. He came riding in on his horse. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> it was down out of Magdalena, actually not that far away. Oh, a lot really? of those mag folks would come up every year to West Fork on an exchange deal. Oh, cool. And our crew would go down there. This was in the 2000 and beyond era. Oh, gotcha. But anyway, the IC takes Steve and I and the crew. We had the crew stage. And he takes Steve and I to this drainage, you know, and he wants us to check it out and see if we can do anything up there. And then he, he leaves, and we walk up the drainage, and there, were fire, there was fire on both sides of the drainage. Oh, brutal. It's like, no, this is not, I mean. Can't do much. Why dig a line in the middle of two fires that are going to burn together, you know, or two parts of a fire? So yeah. we called him up and told him. And it was starting to get real active then, so he just had us go up in this big burn area hold, and we spent the whole rest of the day just watching this thing go nuts. Jeez. So they sent us to another fire, and we kind of kind of leapfrogged these fires. We went to this fire called the Coffee Pot Fire, and the Globe Hotshots had a fire shelter incident while we were there. Oh, no. Yeah, we had this big operation to... This fire was down in a canyon, and it was going to come our way. And it was us, El Carrizo, Globe, the Laguna Hotshots from San Diego County, and some other crews. And this, this division soup wanted us to kind of like drop down over the top of this ridge into the top of this big canyon and dig line there. Ooh. And... So we 
refused the assignment as a group. Yeah. And we told him why. It was just like that fire's going to run up and we're trying to light a fire below a line and we aren't going to get very far before that fire probably decides to come up here. The better move would be for us to just pop over this ridge where you are right now with us and right on this side, dig our line over here and let it burn out and over the top there. And he he went for it. I oh, mean, good. he should have gone for it because his decision was bad, you know. Yeah. But we didn't do it in an insulting way. It was just like, we're not going to do that. That's not safe. You know, just not going to do that. Yeah, we've got some safety concerns here. It's not really yeah. feasible. I think a better route would be maybe go this so way. So the other crews dug the line, and we got chosen to do the burning operation. And so Steve wasn't with us that day. He was buying a house in Hamilton before we left. Oh. And he got a call that he had to go down to Safford or whatever the nearest town was for the, for the day or however long it took conference call with his wife and the realtor on the phone to figure some stuff out you know so i had the crew that day oh yeah yeah and so was directing this burning operation with us you know and we left some of our one of our most experienced squad bosses i left him back behind a little ways to leapfrog with us but to watch and make sure that our burn didn't get across and we had a couple other people doing the same thing so since the other crews were digging, you know, our saws didn't have to do a super lot. So they hung out right where we were, too, and sawed up anything that, you know, I felt like maybe, yeah, let's get that a little lower on the ground or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we'd burn for a long time and we pulled it off and, and it went well. And we got up to where we tied in with the other crews and the the soup of, uh, of, um, one of the crews, you know, came up and he was like, um, they have a spot picked out where we're all going to camp for the night out around this point. And there isn't much work. Globes. Oh, it was globe soup. And he said, uh -huh. we don't have much more work to do out there. And so when we get done, just, you don't need to come out there now. Just, just hang out, you know, just hang out back here in the shade and stuff. And as soon as we get done with that, you know, your burn's all tied in and everything's cool. We'll call you and you can come out. And so we finished it and we were, you know, kind of just relaxing, watering up and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, a big column developed out there where he had said that the camp was going to be. Oh, no. It was maybe not even a quarter of a mile away. And so I decided I was going to walk up there and you know, a little ways and see what was going on. Yeah. And I started to walk up there and all of a sudden the El Carrizo soup, they were working up there too, but they weren't quite out as far as the globe was. All of a sudden these two crews started running back toward us. Oh no. Yeah. And the guy who was the soup of El Carrizo, who I'd known for a long time, he's like, we think we just lost four Sawyers. I think it was four. Oh, no. I think we just lost four Sawyers, and that fire blew up, you know. Yeah. We're getting everybody out of there. And I said, we've got a paramedic and three AMTs on our crew. And he said, send them up here where you are and just have them hold here right now. And so we held, and then the Globe Soup had us, us, me and the AMTs, moving out a little further. And they're... 
the, he and a few of the others on his crew, just a few people, they were just yelling down into the void, you know, hey, do you hear us? You know, and nobody was answering. Mm. And their crew was really angry. They were blaming the safety officer for, you know, it happening or whatever. And they were convinced. They kept yelling, yelling loud and waiting a minute. And all of a sudden, way down the hill, we spot this guy with a fire shelter under his arm appear. And then the others appeared. And they just ran like crazy and just collapsed when they got up to where we were. Oh, man. And Don and our EMTs were checking them out. You know, no burns or anything. They were just exhausted and stuff from... Hightailing out of there, yeah. And the, the you know the adrenaline drain and all that stuff and oh, everything. Man, turns out that they they had gotten trapped down there and they had to run in the other direction, and they got to a place where they felt that they could deploy. So they got the shelters out and they got in them, but the fire died down, and so the lead Sawyer of or the lead guy of their group said, "Hey." This is our chance. Grab your shelters and let's go. We're going to run and try and get out of here. And they, they were able to do it. And that's when we saw them coming around the corner was when they made that final move and got out of there. Probably a smart move, you yeah, know. Yeah, Saw the window and took it. Yeah, so they, uh, their crew, later in the day, they all were back together and stuff. And uh, they wanted to go out, obviously. So they got orders to hike back to this uh hella spot which was like about five miles away and they were going to get them out of there yeah so when they came by our crew we in laguna spent the night in this area that had already burned out and stuff just so we'd be in the area but in a safe spot yeah smart we spent the night there and steve came up to, to join us then uh about the time that this had all ended up happening and stuff and they came the globe all came past our crew on their way out and you know we were all patting them like great man i'm glad everybody's okay you know and yeah yeah and you, you could tell that they were pretty happy to be alive those four that they they were still holding the shelters they wouldn't let go of them oh man i bet yeah and a couple of our people on the crew were that was it was we're close to an area where something conceivably really bad could have happened you know and it we were okay the yeah. whole time, but it affects people in different ways. Well, it does. Yeah, brush with death like that, man. Like and Michelle and Melissa, who were on our crew, had both been on Flathead at the Dude Fire. Oh. You know, and experienced all of that yeah. going on. Fatality there. And yeah, we all, most of us spent the rest of the, the night around little campfires just talking to one another. Yeah. You know, just just talking because we we were everybody was keyed up we couldn't sleep either you know yeah, there's no way yeah and then the next day they had us all hike out and we went elsewhere and went Jeez. elsewhere went to negrito hella base tied in with the rogers Wright and some of the other missoula jumpers who were up there yeah and uh that was out in the middle of nowhere and they had some fires and we broke up into three smoke chaser, split our crew into three, and went to these different fires. And this is getting close to the 4th of July, not quite yet, but getting closer to the 4th of July. Gotcha. One of the jumpers in charge of one of our groups was Jim Thrash, 
who lost his life at South Canyon about a week later. Oh, man. Yeah. As it turned out, you know, they came back. Yeah, this jumper Jim Thrash was really a cool guy, you know. It was running the fire. Man. And then I and some of the crew went to a different fire. And two, three people went to a smaller fire. And we all met back up. Had a quick R&R in Silver City. Then went to White Sands Missile Range. And got involved in this huge burning operation on the on the range from this what there was a wildfire there oh they actually have a person that worked on the base a civilian he was called the range rider that was his job was that he would ride around all over white sands which is huge to to check on they had exotic White Sands is completely fenced in, as gigantic as it is. Oh, really? I didn't with know With a that. giant fence. Oh. And they have exotic, like, uh, elands, these huge antelope-type animals from Africa. Oh. And it's a place we didn't know, but it was yeah. famous, according to him, because admirals and generals and stuff on vacation come to White Sands to hunt these African elands. No way. I never knew that. And so... <laughs> He wanted all this area to burn out to to create new browse for these animals. Oh, gotcha. We didn't know that, but that's what was going on. Oh, no. So we did this 40-hour burnout. I mean, we were on the clock straddling 4th of July for 40 solid hours. Oh, jeez. Everybody was really, really beat. Oh, I bet. <laughs> and, you know, these we finally bedded down after our about 42 hours, you know, and this burn was carried on, and when it got, when it caught up with where we were, it was daylight, and Steve and I talked about it. And it was like, this is this is crazy. I mean, I said, even I'm tired now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's we're not you know we're not thinking straight. This is no good. You know, so we talked to the team, and the team kind of figured out by then what was going on. Oh yeah, put it like nope. No more burning. This fire can do what it wants now. You know, no, we're pulling everybody off of this fire. Yeah, safety and all yeah, that, man. Yeah. And so we went to, uh, we had a short R&R. We didn't have it earlier. We went to a short R&R in Silver City, tied in with some more of the Missoula jumpers who were, like, just jumping fires like crazy. And, Dang. You know, stuff was just crazy. And... We went back to Albuquerque because it looked like we were going to leave. This was the 5th? Yeah. And waiting for orders on the 6th. We were down there 36 days. Holy waiting God. for orders on the 6th. Found out we were leaving late afternoon, early evening. And it was South Canyon Day, as it turned out. <sighs> And we no. didn't know we didn't know about it. Yeah, it but, it, it but already I, happened. But I figured, I figured later that at the exact time that those folks were dying, we were in a restaurant in Albuquerque. Oh man! Um, eating dinner or eating a late dinner, early late lunch, early dinner, whatever you're gonna call it, and flying home. And we got home like 11:30 p.m. to Missoula, Montana time. Yeah. And. Darby guys met us with rigs to drive us all back to the station. And they had rumors about some sort of a tragedy in Colorado where maybe some hot shots and some jumpers were involved in this fire and people got killed and stuff like that. But 
we still didn't know anything till the next morning. Oh, brutal, man. Yeah, and I had to go in and turn in time the next morning early. And we had found out on TV, you know, that morning before we went to work that it was indeed a hotshot crew and some jumpers and likely some Missoula jumpers yeah. that were involved in this thing. And then while I was at the station, we found out that Don was one of the ones who got killed and stuff. So yeah, that was a, that was a, I guess of all these years, there's only one other thing that I've experienced that was anywhere close to that. You know, I mean, somebody we knew yeah, personally close. died who'd been, who we considered an honorary crew member of our crew and who I mentioned to you one time before in the winter, a lot of times, some of us that were locals, you know, jumpers like Mackie and my, some of my friends, Tommy Thompson, folks who were on the hotshot crew, we'd meet up at my house in the cold winter morning, you know, and drink coffee and sit on my kitchen floor and read aloud uh, actual firsthand things that had been written up by people on the 1910 fires, you know, and we'd just be astounded, like, how did they do that stuff without radios? I mean, some of those crews in 1910 had to hike and cut their way with, with, with cross-cut saws and axes for five days to even get to a fire. Yeah. They had no communication, nothing, you know. And so we were all just in, in, in awe of the fact that they did stuff like that. Yeah, you know? with the shovels too, right? So we took, it, we took it pretty hard, you know, what had happened to those folks. And yeah, we went off call for probably just about 10 days you know, to sort stuff out and go to Mackie's funeral. And, you know, I went down and with Rogers and a lot of the Missoula jumpers that were at South Canyon who survived. Sarah Doring had been on our crew in 90. Oh, wow. And Keith Woods and Tony Petrelli. And I knew all those folks, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And we all met up and got together and. Yeah, and all those guys had a close call on that fire, you know? They all did. Yeah. Yeah, they all did. And the, the hard part for for all of us, you know, back in those days is that you never really found out much for a long time just because they had to do a huge investigation and all that, you know? And it's like, no, the jumpers and the hotshot crews need to know because they, those people were us. Yeah. They do exactly we do exactly what they were doing and we need to know yeah we need to make sure it doesn't we need get to know so we can take it. care of ourselves and see if we need to change tactics or, or whatever you know yeah yeah and we found out a little from tony and and sarah and those folks you know who had been there but yeah we had to wait and i mean i don't think we found out anything until like november or december or whatever yeah that's the most frustrating yeah. part because like you said you don't want, you don't want the same you know re repeat you know you don't want the same actions repeated to, to have the same results you know yeah. so you need to know what happened what went wrong or whatever you and know? kevin erickson was also one of the missoula jumpers that were there and he was on our crew in 87 mm -hmm. and kevin was don's brother-in-law oh yeah brutal at, man at just the time that they were at south canyon and stuff and kevin was one of the the last three or four folks, the survivors of that jumper, you know, crew that didn't go up to that spot that Don sent them to above what they were calling the lunch spot at South Canyon. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jeez, man. So they had to escape down that East draw. That was whew, 
Latham and I went there in 95 in the spring, so a year and some months afterwards, but nothing had grown back yet then. You know, you could totally see the fire lines. And we took the, the, the report with us and hiked all over the place, you know, at where the markers were. And Don, Don opted to go down and get the car and drive down onto the freeway because I told him I wanted to walk that east drainage where... Kevin and the folks from the the local hand crew uh, had to escape. Yeah. Yeah, to see what that was like. And it was like, man, because the fire had spotted over. They could see it, you know, and they didn't know if it was at the bottom or not, but they couldn't stay up where they were. Yeah. There was no no safety zone at all. So they just took a chance and went down and made it. And then it didn't all burn out, but by the time I was there, you know, and saw it, a lot of it had burned out. That Gamble's Oak was huge. Oh, you know, yeah. I, there were some places where if I had had a, it was like the Mare fire would have been with the, the chaparral, I could have held a commie straight up in the air and the brush was higher than that. Oh, where, where the fatalities happen. Yeah. And stuff. Jeez. But, you know, Don and I were sitting up there. It was quiet and we were just about done except for me going down in the canyon and him going out to get the rig. And a herd of elk ran through it. Oh, wow. And we were both like, Don was an elk hunter. He's yeah. like, he'd like that. He'd yeah. like that, that there's elk here, you know? Yeah, that's pretty cool there, man. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and then just a ton of fires more all over up here, out in the West Fork in the wilderness and up on in the Kootenai and all over for the rest of the summer. The Big Ann fire out on the east side of the valley yeah, we ended up with everybody that had been there for the whole season ended up with about 1150 for overtime. That's a lot. And I and and Bill or not Bill Steve and some of the squad leaders that you know had done a little more different stuff. I think I ended up at 1206. Jeez, man. Which was the most I'd ever had. Yeah, I don't think I ever hit that number. Actually, I know I didn't. I've never been up to 1206. That's a lot of hours. I've never asked Cash and those guys. They probably exceeded that maybe a couple of times by now. I have no idea. I, I don't know either. Yeah, that's If a I get lot to go still. to the refresher at Darby and, and he's there, I'll, I'm going to ask him. Yeah, you should. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good info to know because, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, you still, some people still at 12, but I think it's still kind of on the rare side. You know? It was a lot. And if I have it here, the last thing I was going to say about that was that. We called it, let me find it real quick here. Yeah. How are we doing time-wise? Oh, we're doing good, man. We're like a little over two and a half hours in, about oh, 240. Okay. So. okay, cool. Yeah. So I've got to find this for you because it's pretty impressive in yeah. retrospect looking at it. So, are you warm enough? I, yeah, fine. Oh, right, perfect. So when I compiled the... I compiled all the year-end statistics, all those years I was on the crew, you know, yeah. how many days on fire, how many days on project work, all of that kind of stuff, and the overtime totals and everything. That's awesome. And then I'd, I'd always do a comparative the season before, so starting on my first season in 85, the next year I'd do the two, the next year I'd have it for the three, and then I ended up having it for all 11 in 95. Yeah. So... We called these pay periods in 1994 the Big Ten. The Big Ten? The Big Ten started with pay period 11, which was in June, okay, and went all the way to pay period 20. So here's the overtime totals for each. Now, these are, for those that might not know, overtime is in addition to the 80 hours of base pay that you get. 
for in a two week pay period. Yeah. So all these numbers I'm going to read you are the hours beyond 80, starting with pay period 11, 55 hours, 117 hours, 128 and a half hours, 174 and a half hours, 126 hours, 151 hours, 123 hours, 122 and a half, 96 and 80. So in those 10 pay periods, we got 1,073.5 hours of overtime. Dang, man. That's unreal. It was pretty unreal. Yeah, that 151, part of that was that pay period ended while we were on the Nick fire out in uh, uh, the Solway country on West Fork. Oh, gotcha. On a big fire. Jeez, man. That's a big year, man. 151. Holy cow. It was crazy. That was a lot of hours. It was a lot of hours, so... And you know what I did at the end of the season? Bought, bought a car? Pearl Harbor Day. I went to Missoula. I traded in the Volkswagen van, which I shouldn't have done. I already told you this. Yeah. Traded in the VW van, which I shouldn't have done. Paid cash for a brand new 94, 95 Toyota 4Runner. Well, you can't go wrong with the 4Runner, though, you know? Oh, it was a good one. Yeah. yeah. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. But and v- then, you know, basically... The only thing more really than that was the next year, 95, um, we did a bunch of cool stuff that year too. We fairly early on, we and all the other Region 1 crews got to go to Canada, to northern Alberta. Oh, cool. Up to the Tar Sands country. Actually, we were up north of Fort McMurray. Of course, a lot of the stuff where we were in, I think, 2014, they had that gigantic fire up there that burned hundreds of thousands of acres and probably negated everything that we were near. Oh, dang. But, yeah, we were up north of where, where some of the big mining operations oh. for tar sands were. Wow. Yeah, and when we weren't on the fire, this fire and, and spiked out, it was black spruce. It was just like Alaska. I never did get to go to Alaska. We, oh, never? We almost got to go two or three times, and then somehow or other it didn't. It's weird to just look at the roll, yeah, you know? Yeah, didn't have, Lolo and us flipped for it one time, and they won. Oh, man. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, it's just the way it is. Yeah. But we, uh, when we weren't camping out, we st- well, they made us stay at one of the fu- refineries, which was really weird. They'd bring, you know, they had those dump trucks. You see pictures of them that Giant. a person is like half as tall as one of the tires on them. Yeah. You know? And they had these giant, giant shovels that would scoop all this tar sand up and put it in these huge trucks, and they'd truck it back to this refinery and process it and get the sleazy oil. That oil is probably should have been left in the ground. I mean, it's part of that pipeline that ran through Montana, but it's really sleazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. Not good. Yeah, we had to live at that refinery while we were up there and it smelled horrible i was gonna say that can't be good for you and they separated the crew we all had two-person rooms but you know we had i think at least four women on our crew so they they could have had their own rooms but they made them stay on the other side of the thing they wouldn't let them camp near us we complained it's just like no this is our crew they're our crew yeah we need to be where we can all be together. Yeah, and ensure know? safety for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, they wouldn't let us do it. Oh, that's so. weird. 
Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah, we didn't like that. Yeah. But then we ended up after that, we flew back to Minnesota, and we did a bunch of fires back there, the coolest one of which was the Winchell Fire, which was in Boundary Waters. Oh, man, what and a great spot. The Forest Service back there, can't remember which forest that particular one was, but that forest, the Forest Service back there has its own beaver float planes. Whoa. Yeah. They That's have a little, cool. little fleet of them. Yeah. And so all, all five Region 1 hotshot crews went back there. Really? We all went. That's cool. And they flew us all into Winchell Lake where this fire was. And some of the fire was on islands in this lake. It was Man. a big lake. Not like a great lake, but a big lake. Yeah. And so they flew in a canoe attached to each float on the float planes. And they flew enough so that there were enough they flew in five hotshot crews, so that's what, a hundred of us, and they flew in enough canoes for every two people. Really? And so That's, so, a, lot of, that's a lot of and canoes. And then we were all camped at these camp spot beautiful camp spots on this lake that were anywhere from a quarter of a mile to a half a mile apart from one another. So we were strung out all down one side of this beautiful lake. And so some of us would work along the shore, but others, you know, like, okay. Reen, you plus so-and-so, grab a Mark III and a bunch of hose, and you're going out to that right-hand island, and then some more people go out to another island and another island. Man. And we'd, we'd, you know, hook the Mark III's up and, and draft out of the lake and fight fire on the lake. That is so cool, <laughs> On the man. islands, you know? Yeah, what a dream, what a dream it assignment. It was cool, yeah. And they flew in fresh food and everything. I mean, it was great. Oh, that's awesome. Great. I think we were out there probably five or six days, something like that. Man. And Phil Schomerdine's birthday was on June 29th, and mine was on June 30th. And so the, the Hotshot crew, we always, we always at the beginning of the season, we had a list of special things like that. We all knew when everybody's birthdays were, and we had it in the travel folder that I had that had all our paperwork and timesheets and stuff in it. And so we'd always keep track like, oh, so-and-so's birthday's coming up. And if we were anywhere where we could do it, We'd buy them a birthday card, you know, and maybe get a cake in a grocery store or whatever, you know, uh, whatever yeah. we could do. That's Sometimes really cool. you couldn't. Yeah. So we're out in the middle of nowhere, and Phil and I are not thinking anything other than that we're going to have our birthdays out on this lake. And yeah. Like the day before, some of the Sawyers, not just from our crew, but from some of the others, a lot of cutting was going on. They needed some, some chain and some bar oil and stuff like that. Uh, and so we got permission from the team for, I think, two Sawyers from each of these each of the crews to fly in with a list. And part of the list was snooze and stuff that people needed yeah. like that, you know, yeah. to go get this stuff. Well, unbeknownst to Phil and I, the crew had put them up to that they had to bring back a couple of birthday cakes for us, but they had to make sure that we wouldn't see them when they came back, when the Beaver float plane brought them back. Oh, yeah. So... They didn't say anything on Phil's birthday. That was the day they went in. And when they came back, they waited until mine the next day. Yeah. And the crew, there were birch trees all over the place there along that lake. Oh, pretty. So they peeled off birch bark, and they made Phil and I birthday cards out of birch bark. Whoa. That it opened like a book, and the crew had all carved their names in them and everything. That and they is got so these cool. cakes out. It was freaking cool. That's really cool, man. It's like those little things, right? Yeah. Marine, like, I mean, 
all these stories, right? Like cool travel, like going all over the nation and yeah. places that you, you wouldn't think to go. That's why like all all of us wildlanders talk about it together. Like there's these places that you would never go on your own because you just don't know about them. And then yeah. fire takes you there. Yeah. And then these special moments, like you said, your birthday and, and being able to celebrate with a, a birch bark card. And, uh, and I've still kid? got it. I've Dude. got it at home in one oh. of my photo albums from that year. Man, that is yeah, so cool. I kept it. I don't know if Phil did, but I did. I'd love to see it, man. That <laughs> it's was cool. Really cool. Yeah, I'll show it to you sometime. Yeah, yeah, super special. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was like, no, man. no, no, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, and then you know, then we came home, and then the rest of the fires were Idaho fires and some Montana fires and stuff like that, and yeah, and then that was that was. I moved on to. I gave up the appointment actually. Um, oh yeah reasons i'll stay my own but yeah yeah totally um yeah i walt smith was still the fmo at sula and i had the opportunity to go back and work for him and bill burhop as a lead fireman on the district crew which i did for the next three years oh awesome. and that and, and that was cool yeah and the, and the temp back back, back to temp life back to being a temp yep. yeah but you know it's okay it was my decision yeah uh, yeah and i already had my house by now you know and this will just give you an idea of how things were back in those days. When I got my little house three miles south of Darby in fall of 84, some friends of mine had owned it. And they they never were, Ed was never able to find a, a good job and stuff. And they they were going to lose the house because they, they were two years of back taxes. Oh, man. And stuff, so... They ended up getting a job in the Midwest for their church. They were pretty religious. Oh, gotcha. And so they were going to leave. And so the opportunity came up that they offered me if I wanted to try and buy the house. So my cousin had owned the house. And so worked through him about it and stuff like that. And this is, this is no great shakes for a house, but it was on three acres the river was with the five-minute walk away. You oh, know, yeah. Across that mill ground south of town where the Yellowstone people were this summer. Yep, yep. But the house and the three acres were $46,500. Oh, man. It was common in the Bitterroot then. Yeah. God, beautiful. You know? I mean, and being in fire and getting overtime and being on the hotshot crew all for, well, this was early on. I wasn't on the crew yet then. Yeah. But... You know, I had it set up with my cousin that my payments were 150 bucks a month, which I could do even on unemployment if I had to in the winter, you know. I could make, he couldn't make any balloon payments that I'd have to do or anything like that. I could pay any amount I wanted, any time I wanted. Oh, that's awesome. So if I'd go on a big fire roll and I could put, 800 bucks down on the house i just write him a check the next month instead of 150 i'd write one for 800 yeah and i was super lucky also and i've been forever grateful that my my mom's mother my grandmother passed away back in kansas in 83 oh man and they'd all my grandfather had already passed away she was 96 i think at this when she died um good run good run he was 88 when he died, and I'm going to regress real quick to tell you a quick story. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So my mom was born in 1911. Her dad, the one I'm, I'm talking about, her mom was born in 1892, I think. He was born in 1888. His mother was born in 1860, right before the Civil War started. Oh, wow. 
See, you, yeah, I mean, with, with so, long... you know, I'm far enough back in 1946 that I have relatives that were born before the Civil War. That's what I was going to say. Like, with, with the longevity in your family, yeah, you're not that far removed. It's crazy. That is crazy, yeah, man. She went, she, uh, my, my grandfather's mom lived to be 103. And so in the, in 1960, we made a trip to Kansas and I got to meet her when she was a hundred, I think. Jeez. So you're just working. You're just getting close to your midlife crisis now. Then what you're telling me. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to have one. Really. About, yeah. I don't, yeah. You got no reason to, but I'm just thinking if, if you were, you're, you're, you're yeah. creeping up on it now with the longevity. But you know, of your family. that's, that's pretty incredible that, really? was, that, that the history of the family goes that far back and that I got to meet her in 1960, who was born in 1860. That's unreal. That's pretty freaking cool. That's really cool. And one, I mean, it shows, you know, and I'm, I'm not, you know, just trying to blow smoke here, but I, when I, when we were first starting the podcast, I didn't really know how old you were. I knew you'd been around and seen some things. So, like, afterwards, that's why I had to ask him, like, oh, well, are you? Because I'll be 77 on June 30th this year. Dang, man. Yeah, because I didn't think, I didn't think you look at, look at it at all. I thought you were in your 50s. Thanks. You know, I was trying to, like, figure out, like, cause I, I kind of knew your timeline a little bit before I met you. And I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Man, like. But to get back to where I was yeah. going. And this is neither here nor there, but it's really important thing in my life is that when my grandmother passed away, um, the entire inheritance, my mom had three siblings, so there were four of them. And the entire inheritance was $60,000 after taxes. Oh, wow. So each of them got fifteen grand. And in 84, my mom said, Grandma would be really proud to help you buy your house. So I am going to write this check out to you for that 15 grand. Oh, it's awesome. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's my mom, but yeah. you know, it's just like that's That's I mean, a good you chunk. Don't, you don't have to do that. No, that's a good goes, chunk of change. No, I want to and grandma is smiling wherever she is right now. Yeah. And so my down payment was my five thousand dollars and that fifteen. That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like you said, like relatives, you know, good relatives who care about their kids and their grandkids, like they, yeah, that matters. You know, making sure they have a good life and a good roof under their head, over their so head. So I poured it on after '84 when I was on the hotshot crew. Those years, you know, they were Smart. all, they were all good. I poured it in, and I had it paid for by the end of the '88 season. Man, that's smart. Yeah, yeah well done. I mean, so, you know. It was cool not having house payments all these years and stuff. You yeah, know? And, life's good. And I mean, any other place you probably could have never done that. And I had made a decision. Maybe I mentioned this you, to you before. When I got to the Bitterroot, I mean, I, I had made that quick trip with Gene in the winter and saw it. And it was beautiful. And when we got here the following June, it was really beautiful. But I, I knew really nothing about this place until after I got here. I mean, I didn't realize that, you know, from our house three miles north of Darby, we were looking out to the west, and that was all part of a gigantic wilderness. Yeah. And we drove out to West Fork, you know, to Nez Pass, and all of that was a giant wilderness, basically unroaded, except for just, you know, the Elk City Road yeah. that goes over to the other side. And it's like, oh, my God, the Anaconda Pintler Wilderness and... All this cool stuff, you know? Yeah. And I, I kind of decided right then that it's like, nope, I'm the. This is 
where I want to be. San Diego had changed so horribly yeah. in the years from 70 when I went to Hawaii in the Navy and when I came back three years later. Oh. It was just insane. The crime had gone nuts. We never had gangs before that. And there were L.A. gangs that were down in San Diego now. Man. The pollution, this is before that L.A. and Southern California finally put in uh, uh, you know, all kinds of clean air act yeah. stuff and everything. It was horrible. Man. I remember coming home from Hawaii and I'd get these horrible headaches just from the smog and stuff. Yeah. And the bitter it was. Boundary slice of heaven. It was heaven. Yeah. It was the population was so small, especially in those really early years. Yeah. Actually through all of that it was still pretty small. Man, I would love Sula, to see it. Sula, even though it was on Highway ninety three, was like out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, I bet. You know? And it was like, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to live here, you know. You'd get unemployment because there really weren't jobs. I mean, all there was was forest service and timber. Yeah. You know, and if you didn't know somebody and could get a job for a logging company or in a mill, I mean, there was nothing for people to do. Unemployment was kind of a godsend. For a lot of us. Yeah, know? I bet. I mean, yeah, a lot of us in the Forest Service in general, like you said, just to, to make it make it through, make ends meet, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've been pretty grateful that I've got to be here all this time. Yeah. And, uh, and the stories and the adventures, man. Yeah, it was good stuff. And so I think we'll, we'll stop just a minute here. Yeah. The three years that I went back to Sula... By then, I'd already, I was already strike team leader qualified and stuff like that. And had, had I done division soup yet? I don't think I had quite yet. Anyway, um, did a bunch of smoke chaser fires on the district, you know? Yeah. Got to occasionally go to West Fork and do some sort of division stuff on wilderness fires, which were run differently than than a traditional fire because there were a lot of areas where you wouldn't do anything yeah, and others where you would. And in 96, when they had the Sweat Warrior fire, big fire out there, they'd put together a team, a Type 3 team that Bob McKee ran uh, from Darby because oh, yeah. he was a Type 2 IC. And so it was Type 2 for a little while and then Type 3. So I got to go out there and learn I wasn't qualified to do op stuff, but I got to do a little bit of that, helping figure logistics stuff and this, that, and the other. Yeah. It was pretty laid back. We had a bunch, not a bunch, but we had some crews there from other places. And Charlie Mabbitt, who was a wilderness ranger out there for years, um, and had been there for a long time before before I ever went out there, you know. Um, really knew the country. Yeah, and... He and I had to go into a burn area back behind Hell's Half in Storm Creek where there was a rumor an outfitter camp had burned up and see if we could find it and if it indeed had. And if it had, that was an area where we needed to have a hella spot to support these crews that were hiking to different places out there. Oh, yeah. So Charlie, because, because he was a wilderness ranger and he knew fire, um, he and I hiked into there so that he could... He could take a look at the countryside, you know, and if I saw a spot that I thought would be a good hella spot, if he was cool with us using it. Oh, yeah. You know, if we minimally cut down as few trees as possible. We didn't have any giant helicopters out there anyway. Yeah. And so 
It was cool. We lucked out at a couple of the places that we had, two places that I picked out. The only trees that had to come down were a couple of snags, no live trees. Oh, that's really nice. So it worked out really good. Yeah. Yeah. So got to go out there and, you know, see what that was like. Um, was, the, was the outfitter camp gone? Huh? Was the uh, the outfitter camp, was it gone? Did it, it burn gone. up? It did burn up. Oh, it was a small one. It was just a couple of tents. But, oh. yeah, it burned up. Shame. Messed it up. He wasn't going to be able to use it anymore because most of that drainage had, had burned up. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Yeah. But... I'm trying to think in 96, went up to the Willow Creek fires for a while. Um, same thing, Jerry Feynman, who had retired, he was on Bitterroot IR crew number one oh. and two back in 63 and 64, 64 for sure. Oh. So he, he, was the, he was retired, but he was the IC type three of those couple of fires in the Willow Creek drainage. And I got to go up and be ops for as a kind of a trainee for him oh cool it was cool they'd let you do some of that stuff i mean it wasn't like it was a super complicated fire but it was cool because there was a lot of stuff still that you had to figure out like okay we've got these two job corps crews we've got these three other crews what are we going to do they'd have to come in at the end of the day because we had a single campground they didn't spike in the middle of nowhere yeah you know, and they'd report what they'd accomplished and where they'd accomplished. And we had to look on the maps and stuff and figure out, okay, does it look like to you that you can progress on from where you were the next day? So we'd make out the plan, the shift plan and stuff like that. Oh, cool. So it was, you know, it was kind of cool. Yeah, great experience. I didn't really want to be on a team or anything, but, you know, it was, yeah. was kind of cool because a lot of times you would get to do stuff like that at a small, a small in-house level, you know. Yeah. And it was fun. And so I got to be there when Walt retired in the summer of 97. Oh, cool. And that was, that was pretty awesome. You know, sad because he was such a good guy. Yeah. And he was the one that was instrumental in getting a lot of training for us back in those, you know, fire crew years on yeah. the district and stuff like yeah. that. And in 98, I got to go, three of us got to fly to Florida during these big fires. And... They low-boyed um, our, our big engine. So they had that 750 I told you about. Oh, yeah. It still had the old one. Yeah. It got low-boyed back there, and we were there a couple of days before it got there. Oh, gotcha. So, you know, we gallivanted around in that and mopped up and didn't do a heck of a lot of real firefighting, but put out a lot of stuff, you know. And yeah. Joni Cummings went with us on that with Tim Gennard and I, and... She, to this day, in my experience, is the only person I know that's got to saw down a coconut palm. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I know anyone. And, yeah, I, I can't remember if it was like when I was in the Great Northern or somewhere, they were one of the you know folks when I was crew boss and wanted to cut down a palm tree so bad we went to California and just yeah. never got near one. Yeah, so Johnny got to cut down a, a coconut palm. That's cool. And Bill Burhop, who was a longtime friend of mine, and he, w he had gotten an appointment in 95, that was the first blast of appointments that anybody got. Oh. Um, the lead guys got, I forget exactly what it was called, but Jim Leverton at Darby, Bruce Blunt or Bruce Windhorst at West Fork, and Greg Rancier at Steve I all got, it was like a crew crew coordinator position. Oh. So they, they were like under the FMO, they were like the head 
district fire guy with an appointment and then they you know lined out all the work for the fire crew and did the training and all that kind of stuff oh gotcha so bill bill did that at sula he was the guy that got that at sula oh and gotcha yeah so he was a cool guy and yeah it was fun being back there and getting to work with him and we had different fires during those years that uh you know some fires that got jumped and Wayne Williams come with some of them, and Hardy Blumke, yeah. all these characters that had been Missoula Jumpers for a long time that we'd all been on a lot of fires together, you know? Yeah. They'd come down there, and, you know, we'd coordinate with them and everything. Kind of like reunion fires then, kind of? Yeah. That's and we were cool. still doing a fair amount of burning back in those days, too. You know, the Hotshot Crew, we did tons of burning, tons early and late. And, yeah, man. Yeah. In 98 nine, or 89, I remember, we... We probably got 170 or 80 hours of overtime that year just in the fall doing burns after the fires were done. Dang. Except for a West Fork fire that became a wildfire, a burn. Yeah. You know? Dang. Yeah, which is, it, for folks who don't really know, like that's, uh, those are hard earned hours because you got less daylight to work to get those hours. Yep. So that's a lot of hours. And, and we did burn. a lot of those big ones. You know, we'd be out there till one o'clock in the morning. And we'd drive back to the station, get there at 2 o'clock, and have to be back by 7 to Jeez. go mop up or line another one, you know? Yeah. So oh, Man, running like four hours of sleep or less. The Hot Shot Crew was really lucky all those years because, and before I got on, because of all those clear cuts and all that logging and burning, we got a lot of experience. Control burns, they're different than wildfires, but a lot of stuff is real similar and and how you can influence fire to maybe go in certain directions based on lighting patterns and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and being able to just observe fire behavior. You fire know, that's behavior a lot, especially stuff. for new folks, you know. We, we learned a lot, you yeah. know. And a lot of us would get to help. We weren't true burn bosses, a lot of us, but we got to help do portions of, you know, okay, Reen, you want to run this part of this burn, you know, get up here on this observation point and, you know, then I'd, I and others would get to direct the crew folks of what we saw and where we wanted them to go and how we wanted the line to progress down and stuff like that. Man, yeah, that's a really good experience. It was cool. Yeah, that's awesome. It was really cool. Yeah, yeah. So I was really lucky all those years. Had a bad fall one time in 88 up on that Rock Creek fire and hurt my hip, but none of us ever wanted to leave yeah. you know i toughed it out i probably shouldn't have but it ended up being okay it did force a lot of blood down in my lower leg Ooh. which i didn't notice you know but yeah. i was still i couldn't go out on the line but where our crew was working for that time period i stayed in camp but i had binoculars and i could see their work location so i was their eyes and their weather spinner Oh, nice. They did it locally where they were working, too, but I did it because I could see wind patterns and stuff and, and all that. So, yeah, just being a lookout. Yeah. Finally, I, when we came down was when I we went home one night and took a shower before we went back the next day. I noticed all that dark blood on my lower leg, and I showed Bill the oh. next morning. He's like, yeah, I guess we better go to the EMT at the camp, you know, and we went in, and he goes, so when did this happen? I was like, oh, I don't know, about four days ago or whatever he's like you freaking hot shots you guys just never take care of yourselves oh, you know yeah. 
so I didn't say anything, you know. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> went into Missoula, or went into Hamilton and, and saw Doc in there billing in with me, and he's like, he knew how, so I was 42 then, you know, and he's like, yeah, you know, if you had a sedentary job and you weren't in excellent shape and hiking and, and you know, breathing hard and doing stuff all the time, I'd say that that could have created a problem for you, but you're past that stage now, so just try and take it easy a little longer. Yeah, I wonder if he's worried about you developing yeah. a clot from all that blood pooling, you yeah, know? but it worked out okay. Yeah. You know? And then in 89, I'd had a couple of close calls with rocks, big rocks, you know? Rollers, yeah. People did, on burns, on fires, and stuff like that. But, you know, luckily, nine times, 9.9 times out of 10, it works. Yeah. You know? Yep. But in 89... Part of our crew one day, the hotshot crew, took off. Darby was getting fires, smoke chaser fires. And a fire out by Blue Nose Lookout took off. And half the hotshot crew went out there. And the other half of us stayed in and broke up into two and three person smoke chaser teams. Uh, Bill let Joe, take, Joe Thompson take the crew. And he stayed in to kind of help coordinate us with these burns. And we broke up into these little teams and went on Derby to different fires and stuff like that. And I and a lady named Robin Toole, who was on our crew that year, she and I went to a little fire out toward that Black Bear country between Scalcohoe and Railroad Creek and out in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Black Bear Point, I think, had an old lookout at one point in time, oh, if really? I'm remembering correctly, correctly. But, yeah, she and I went out there, and Sister Sandy and another guy went to a fire that was down lower than we were, and... We were able to drive, I think, to Black Bear Point. Bill drove us up there and dropped us off with our chainsaw, and a district chainsaw and smoke chaser stuff and everything, you know. And we took off down the hill and we couldn't see it. And we looked all afternoon. We had, you know, Air Patrol had seen it and kind of gave us a location. This is before, before GPS, before lat longs, township range and section guesswork, you know, yeah, all that stuff and. We were in big timber and lodgepole and stuff, and we searched all over and we couldn't find it. Sandy and the other guy found theirs, and the other people, I guess, found theirs because there theirs were in other places. But it got dark, and we still couldn't find it. So we decided to hike the mile. We didn't even get a whiff of smoke smell. Oh, man. Air Patrol was trying to tell us where it was, and it just didn't work. And it got too dark. So we just hiked back up to where he dropped us off and camped there for the night. Went down early the next morning, got a whiff, and we found it. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a snag. Oh. It had been struck. It was a sn well, it was a live tree, but it had been struck, and there was no fire up in it at all. It was just ground fire, and the ground fire was maybe oh, as big as the interior of your trailer here. Oh, really? Maybe a little bigger than that. That was about yeah. it. But nothing going on, really, you know, and... So there was a bunch of downfall to cut up. So got this chainsaw out that the district had given us, had the tag on it, fire ready and all that. It had a horrible, horrible chain on it. Oh, no. And it didn't have a file, a round file. Oh, no. So a bunch of stuff was missing from the equipment pack and everything. So, Not fire you know, I, did, I just kind of determined that I mean, we watched it. There was no fire in the strike tree at all. It was big. It was probably about 100 feet high. There was no fire in it at all. And it's like, 
we're just going to have to Pulaski some of this stuff and then throw it out because we're not going to get another saw. Yeah. You know, I was pissed. I wasn't very happy. Oh, I bet. And uh, so we mopped up like crazy, had to dry mop. The fire had rained. It had rained a little bit on the fire, so we did have a little moisture in the ground. Oh, good. That helps. Yeah. And so we mopped up all the next day, and then we camped on a hillside above the fire. There were trees everywhere. There was a lot of trees in that country. And I didn't much think about that, you know. And so we camped on a slope a ways above our fire. And we were on a slope, so we found a spot where we could... We had a big down log that we could put our feet against to keep from sliding in our sleeping bags down the hill. Yeah. Robin was on one side. I was on this side. We had a log in between, and we strung out a blue tarp over us. And we had a pretty cozy little spot, you know. Had a nice taut tarp just in case it rained or anything, you know. Yeah. About 4 o'clock in the morning, way up the this, this scalp drainage, this big wind came up. Oh, about four o'clock in the morning something like that and you could hear it coming and it got louder you know didn't hear any snags go down anywhere or anything but i mean i was awake for quite a while just thinking well you know there's nowhere to go yeah you know and so listened to it for a while kind of kind of slightly dozed but not really and then the tarp was really taut and I heard pine needles. You could hear them. They'd bounce, you know, bounce off the roof from the wind, knocking them out of the trees and stuff like that. Yeah. And for a reason that to this very day remains absolutely unknown to me, I rolled over onto my left side, so I rolled over to the right. Yeah. And the whole world came apart. Stuff started flying, the tent ripped, branches were coming down and stuff. And I was like, holy crap, you know? And Robin, are you okay? Yeah, are you okay? We were okay. And so what happened? She she'd been asleep, you know, and didn't even hear it until it happened. Yeah. I said, I think we had a snag fall on our camp. Oh. You know? And I fished around and found my flashlight. And had I stayed like I was lying on my back, right where my chest would have been had I not rolled over, a stob about that big around on this tree was down into the ground right where my chest would have been. Stuck like a stake into the ground. Oh, man. It took us both to pull that out of the ground the next morning. Yeah. That stob. I mean, there's no question that... It would have been through, yeah. I would have been not around, and Robin would have had a hell of a horrible thing to deal oh, with and stuff, man. you know? Yeah. So what it was, it, the strike tree had split in half, and the top half had fallen over us, hit another tree, and busted, and that branch just happened to be right where my chest would have been. Oh, man, Rain, you, you lucky so, man. <laughs> we had a soul-searching day for the rest of the day. We talked about it. A bunch and I was like you know I guess I would have cut it down had I had a sharp chainsaw at the time Ooh. but honestly I didn't I still didn't think that that would have been a problem and it didn't look like the 
the strike had gone to me real deeply into the tree, but apparently it had. Yeah. Man. So we finished the fire that day and called for, you know, a pickup back up at the spot. And Bill came and got us. And when we got up there, I said, we had a, we had a really close call overnight. We had a wild night. Yeah, a really wild night. Oh, I took a bunch of pictures of it. I even oh, really? laid back in that spot and had Robin take pictures of it and everything. Yeah. And, you know, he believed me, but mainly my anger was really vented at not having a good saw. Oh, I bet, you know? man. And when we got back to the station, Ray Rodriguez was the dispatcher. He was a good guy, and he'd been around for a long time, since the 60s. It was like, the saw was tagged as being perfect and usable. Yeah. And it wasn't. And, yeah, I guess I should have hiked it back up there and got another one. But we never opened it up, you know, until that morning. And we wanted to work on the fire while the moisture was still in the ground and, you know, all that. So I didn't call for another one, but you need to talk to the crew or whoever you got doing these things and putting tags on them because this is crazy. Yeah, you should be able to trust that it's fire ready if it says fire so ready. It's fire ready. It should be fire ready. And he did. He read everybody the riot act, and it never happened again. Oh yeah, I know of. But that evening, all, everybody was done with their fires, so all of all, the other nine of us plus Bill drove out and joined the crew out below Blue Nose there where the camp was. Oh, yeah. And old Jim Crockett, he was already retired. He was up in Blue Nose. He was our observer for oh, this really? fire, which oh, is cool. That's really cool, man. So we got out there and tied in with the crew. And I'm almost done. Oh, yeah, no worries. <laughs> we got out there and tied in with the crew. And they were, actually, they were still out on the fire, but they were coming in within an hour. Oh, nice. So... We had a picnic table, and I just started working on the time for all of this that had been on these different smoke chaser fires, you know, to time was going to be a nightmare for that pay period. Oh, I bet, man. With the hotshot crew having different hours, 10 of them having different hours than the other nine of us and all this stuff. And it was a good time to get a jump on some of that, you know. Yeah, smart. Yeah. So Crockett comes back into camp about the same time our crew did, and it was great to see everybody, you know. I told him, you know, I pulled them all together, and I said, we had a really close call, Robin and I did with a, with a snag, and I kind of told him what had happened with the saw and what had happened, and I said, I took a bunch of pictures, you know, of it, and when I get them back, I'll show them to you. So Crockett comes in, and uh, hey, he, he was one, of, he loved it when people that had worked for him on the IR crew way back, or when... Joe and I and Brian Whetstone all went to the crew in 85 after he already retired and stuff. But he really made him proud that his people that had worked for him at Sula went to be smoke jumpers or were now squad bosses on the hotshot crew or whatever. You know, yeah. he, he really he really liked that. That's cool. And he'd always stop in if, if we, we happened to be rolling and. You know, he'd see the rigs at the SO getting orders to go somewhere or whatever. He'd always stop in or he'd come find us when we get back. You know, he was retired. But, yeah. oh, yeah, we went to a fire, you know, at that same place in Arizona in, you know, in in 65 or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah that's it was so cool. cool. So here he is. I've got all these timesheets out on this table, you know, and we're all, you know, doing stuff. And he goes, what are you doing? I went, doing time, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> doing time. And he laughed. He looked at us and he laughed. And he said, you know, I can remember many a time when I was running the crew back in the mid-60s 
where I just rip off the corner of a sea rat box and wrote, write the crew time down on it and turn it in, and it was good enough. Oh, really? And I was like... Different times. You know, I wish it was still like that, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, man, simpler times, huh? Yeah, yeah. So when I got those photos back, yeah. I, I don't think that they really, they really thought it was like the picture shows that it was. Didn't really do the pictures. Didn't really do it justice. I'll show it to you. Yeah, it, it's, I didn't bring it. Oh. It's on my refrigerator door at home. I, I, I've got the date marked on the calendar. Oh know? yeah. Yeah. Dang, man, I'd love to see it. Might just have to swing by your house one of these days just to check out crazy. all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Is that the closest? Is that the closest brush you had with death on that a? That was the closest. Stint? Yeah, mm. I had, I had a rock come pretty close one time, but I was in a place where, I could. I could and had a couple of options. Yeah. I could wait long enough to see which way it was going to bounce and it was going to bounce far enough away that I'd know right then which direction I could go in to get away with it, get yeah. away from it. That's still pretty scary though. Yeah. Yeah. But that that one was that one was the big one. The other one, there was a fire near the mouth of Kootenay Creek in 92 before we went to those fires down on the Salmon River. Yeah. It had rained and stuff on the fire. We there were a couple of t two or three type crew, cr two crews. Actually, every time I fire air p fly air patrol, I can still see the fire scar from that fire. Oh, wow. And I think about it every time I fly by there, which is like almost every time. Yeah. So Bill got a division soup gig, and I had the crew, and we dug some hotline right in the beginning, and then it rained, and then we were just you know, taking advantage of the weather and had places where we could plumb into Mark III and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I was walking along. I was by myself. Bill had gone out ahead to do his division stuff. And I was walking out ahead by myself toward his direction. And there was like this little, not really a cliff, but a bank, lots of trees on up above it and stuff like that. So I'm walking on the line down this thing. And all of a sudden, there's this loud bang and I'm flying off the trail. Oh. My hard hat is off my head going down the hill with a softball-sized rock next to it. Holy cow. We had had nothing come down on that fire. You know, you always talk about that stuff, and we did. Yeah. Every morning at the briefing, the crew briefing, it's like, watch out for snags, you know, all these other things. Rollers and... Nothing had happened. Nothing at all like that on that fire at all and and i fell down the hill but i didn't go very far and i didn't get hurt oh really and, and you know i i got up and i looked around and it's like it didn't even hit me it just it just hit the hard hat and i did not have a chin strap on we didn't do that a lot of the times yeah. depend on what you were doing you did you had your chin strap but you just didn't wear it. They always gag me. Yeah, way. same. We'd only wear them for like flights or if you're in a yeah, jumping mainly, UTV mainly or something. Flights, yeah. Mainly flights, yeah. And so it put a little dent in the hard hat, not much, but scared the crap out of me. And I quick called on the radio and it's like, okay, everybody had a close call with a rock, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, be careful because didn't know it was happening, but it is. Yeah. That was it. Jeez. Well, that's more more than uh, more than you like to have close calls wise, you know. Yeah, but of all those years, you know, that's pretty lucky. And then I never really had anything closer in the later years. So I think this is probably a a good time for us to stop. So the last one 
what we'll do is we'll kind of take off at those three Sula years before I went to dispatch and then the fires of 2000 and then all the West Fork years because that's when I started getting way more involved with the lookout program yeah. again. I kind of took a took well, a little detour well, there I for a while. I had too much suppression stuff to do. You know, I just didn't have time for lookout stuff. Yeah. And I'll tell you about some research that I did way back when. I got to interview some folks going back as far that had lookouts on the Bitterroot as far back as 1920. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good little teaser for folks that are tur- tuning into this because, you know, like... A lot the, of Westwork lookout stuff. Yeah. And 96... When I went back to Sula, that was the start of my then till now air patrol stuff, too. Oh, every, yeah, that's so, good stuff there, too. Which I'll say it again when we do the next one, but I looked upon myself as an aerial lookout. Yeah. Yeah. I was part of that helping them. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be an extra set of eyes out there. Yep. Yeah, which is, yeah, helps the whole forest, helps the lookouts, help, you know, helps everybody. So we'll save that for next time. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, man. So tune in next time to hear about the lookouts and, uh, yeah. Yeah, some flight stuff. Flight and, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be really good. As much lookout stuff as I can cram in. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah and I have some stuff to say about the Sula district and lookouts, and I told you, but we won't tell the others until next time. Yeah, until next time. Yeah. So tune in for part three, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll uh, block out a nice piece chunk of time for that one. We'll like a weekend again. So sounds good. We can, you know, no time rush. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Reen. thanks again, Reen. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, tune in for part three. It's fun reminiscing about all this stuff. You know, and it's, yeah. I was going to tell you one thing just to end it up that I did all these journals, you know, and I typed up at the end of the season one of my Christmas projects as well as putting photo albums together was I typed up all of those hot chocolate journals. And what I would write down in those little idea books, I'll give you an example. The journal from 1994, the 1200 hours of overtime season yeah when i typed it up it came out to 198 single space type pages wow a lot of stuff and i tallied i think i told you i tallied up about 146 of these idea books actually it's probably closer to 200 because a lot of them were doubles that's what i was thinking you said it earlier when i counted them up last week i only counted this is one this is two this is three four five but actually, some of the fives were really tens. Yeah. You know? That's what I think we said earlier. And then 198 single-spaced. Man. Yeah. That's a lot. And then it, it, I totaled all that up, too, including the earlier stuff that I'd done and written out, not all of which I did type up, but a lot I did. All total, it, I've got something like 14 or 1,500 pages of stuff typed up Jeez. or close Man. to typed up. I think you had to figure out how to do, so, do something. So all what life. I would do sometimes, I still did it. I did it this last summer. I've done it every summer. I would like, let's say it's 2002, right? And I just someday during the summer, I was still working at West Fork full time then and during during the season. Yeah. I'd go, okay, it's July 20th. I wonder what I was doing on July 20th in 1995 or 1985. I'd look it up. Oh, yeah, the Hotshot Crew, we were here. That's and so then cool. I'd look it up another year, and I'd look it up another year. Yeah. Because I can do that, you know, because I've got those journals are so complete. Yeah. I yeah. got, I, I got like, a, a, 
really rudimentary version. That was my little Smokies, you know, because I wrote down a little note every day throughout my fire career. But it's super cool, like you said. Where was that this time of year, you know? And I, It amazes me now when I look back. A lot of the stuff was very, very detailed. I would force myself, no matter how long the day was on a hotshot crew fire, that I would try and write my journal entry before I went to sleep so I wouldn't lose anything yeah. during a busy day the next day and confuse stuff. I mean, smart. there were things that I'd, I'd have, you know, had the briefing, crew assigned to Division Alpha, the Division, division Soup was so-and-so, we dug line from here to here, had air support from, I mean, it's just like, man, was I really that detailed? But I was. Yeah. yeah. Smart. Pretty man. cool stuff. That's really cool. Yeah. I guess. This has been so much fun. Oh, it's been great, Reen. Thank you so much for doing it, man. I mean, like even this, you know, on Thursday night, you know, and no, no com- problem. coming down to see me. You work today. I'm keeping you from getting home. I'm oh, sorry. No, no, I'm, man. It's worth it for me, man. Like, I really appreciate having you in and just hearing the stories. So, cool. Uh, yeah. Everyone, uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, yeah, tune in for you. part three. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>